Welcome to Ad Hoc History. It's not the podcast that you wanted, but it's the podcast that you deserve. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Ad Hoc History. I am Asher, and I am joined today by my sister, Luxa. What this is, is like our third take, so uh, just bear with us. It's been a long day. It has been a long day for everybody, I'm sure. Whenever you're, you're listening to this, wherever you are, I'm sure your day also sucked. So, I mean, unless you like just woke up, in which case, like, it's going to be an awesome day. Don't worry about it. Yeah. yeah well, yeah, you're going to listen to this show and then it's going to be a great day, right? I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So what the fuck are we talking about today? Well, we are going to follow up our fascinating uh, and penetrating discussion on Herodotus and the genesis of Western civilization with a much more complicated and more existential follow up, the Peloponnesian War. And we are going to talk about Thucydides. Thucydides. The history of the Peloponnesian War. Thucydides is considered by many, probably including myself, to be the greatest historian ever. And and just in the sense that his method of history was very novel and took a lot from where Herodotus left off, but took it more into a modern, secular, objective brand of history. And really, he, he has influenced the modern era. I, I don't know, like the modern mind, I think. Like his, his inquiry into this war, the Peloponnesian War, the great war between Athens and Sparta that consumed the entire Greek world and was so devastating that after the war, you know, the Greeks almost broke themselves. They almost lost the will to go on in a sense. And and I'll get to this with, with the Macedonians invading and Alexander and all that. But this war was very different than the Persian War and Herodotus, which, you know, we described as a feel-good romp. And uh, us versus them, the Greeks defeating the fat Persians. and Yeah, even though, I mean, objectively, the Persians were probably... I mean, when you really look at it, they were actually, it probably would have been a little bit better to have been a person living in the Persian Empire than anybody but a citizen living in the Greek world. Just saying. Yeah, it wasn't that bad of a place. Like a lot of the satraps were kind of like local clients to Persia who had a lot of autonomy. So they were very, they very much liked these, you know, Persian client kingdoms where you know, the Jews were one of these, basically, that, you know, they could do their own thing, but they're not going to ever, like, really um, challenge us or anything like that. Yeah, it was basically, like, just give us a little bit of money and pay us lip service and you guys can do your own thing. And then they apparently, like, improved infrastructure. Uh, Zoroastrianism was, like, super against slavery, too. So I guess they didn't have slavery, which was not, that was kind of rare, I guess. So I don't know, man. Well, yeah, they had slavery in the sense that Herodotus called it. Like, um, people weren't free. You know, they were they were subjects. Um, yeah, and again, these terms are so sticky in terms of like understanding them in a historical context. That, like, yeah, some historians would say like, no, that's not slavery. Some would say like, well, yeah, depending on a myriad of different definitions. So, yeah, complicated issue for sure. But. The, Gre- the Greeks and the Persians, like, Herodotus makes it sound like, you know, it, it is a feel-good romp. It's like a fucking comic book. Like, here are the evil guys, here are the good guys. It's super cut and dry. 
Just saying. Yeah. In reality, maybe not quite so simple. That's all. Absolutely. And, um, you know, this is after the Persians had lost the war, not before it, you know. So if, if you were interviewing the people before the war, I'm sure they'd have much better things to say about the Persian Empire than after it, you know, right? But, Absolutely. Uh, anyway, so Thucydides kind of picks up from where we left off last time. Now, the Athenians have led Greece to defeating Persia on the sea. And Persia has also been defeated on land with, as a, with a coalition between all the Greek cities. But the main force at sea is Athens. And they control this main, this massive navy. And they've set up this little league, they call it, the Delian League, which has all these cities all over the Aegean Sea as members. And they contribute money to this, to this giant fuck-all navy. And Athens runs the show, basically. Now, so this is the this is the the climate that we've entered in, and Thucydides says it like this: the growth of the power of Athens and the alarm which this inspired in Sparta made the war inevitable. Yeah, I think that we we see this kind of play out all the time, right? Like when there is, I guess what what we would in the modern days like rhetorically call a looming threat. Absolutely. And it's it's kind of like, well, if we don't do something now, then this could get out of hand in the future. Yeah. Or at least that's kind of how the Spartans saw it, I think. I think you're right. I've I've heard some people parallel this um to the kind of relationship that the US and China had before the pandemic broke out. Interesting. And yeah, again, bugging the question, is war with China inevitable? I hope not. But yeah. That's a whole other episode. Shit. <laughs> I mean, one of the reasons Thucydides came back into vogue and is so popular again is because of the Cold War. Mm-hmm. And like the thing about the Peloponnesian War is that, yeah, it's between Athens and Sparta, but they have this whole league. They have this whole coalition. And so it's very, it's very reminiscent of, you know, the NATO versus the Warsaw Pact or, you know. The democracies versus uh, you know communism and yeah. you're either on one side or the other like there's a few people like kind of on the sidelines but the, if the war comes to you you have to choose a side and this was very much how this war was in greece now people didn't want to join in the war but they were forced to join in the war and we will get into one of these episodes that thucydides talks about the uh the siege of milos where the athenians show up to this city that was trying to remain neutral and and offer them you know look you can you can join us or you or we can destroy you and we'll get into that a little bit later but this is a nasty war and this is greek on greek and this is this war degenerates into a stalemate and into all that brilliant thinking that the greeks are famous for all that creativity you know this new thought well, this becomes focused on destruction and new ways to do it, new clever ways to do it. And it's very much like a total war in, in that sense. Um, there's really no lines that weren't crossed in this war. Uh, this is a nasty, nasty war. Hmm. All right. Well, let's get into it. So like, okay, you told us a little bit about what happened to start it. Like, give us a little bit of a little bit of like a feel for like the different cultures of these two city states and like maybe why they butted heads so hardcore. Absolutely. 
so this is, you know, these are two of the most famous cities of the ancient world, right? Athens and Sparta. And they're both Greek. They're both like Hel Hellenistic or whatever. Mm -hmm. But they're they're almost opposites, like as similar as they are to each other. They're both city states. They're both Greek. Uh, you know, both have the similar military and culture, but their their system of government and their society is is very, very different. And mm -hmm. here we have Sparta, which is... First of all, a, diff a different ethnicity. They, you know, Do Dorian. There's the Dorian invasions was this mythic event in antiquity, where kind of at the end of the Bronze Age, at the end of that Homeric period, that that classic kingdom that fought in the in the Iliad. Those guys were conquered by these outcomers, these Dorians, and the Spartans were said to be the you know the descendants of these Dorians, while the Athenians were said to be the Ionian descendants of, you know, the people from the Isles and stuff, the original Greeks. The, uh, so they, you know, ethnically, they're probably extremely similar, but they were different. There was a difference. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's amazing how the littlest fucking thing can lead to a bunch of petty bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it's probably a cultural thing, too. Sure. You know, the, the Spartans were focused on land, and, you know, uh, land warfare, and the, the Athenians were focused on the sea. Mm -hmm. And so, like, from that sense, you know, the you know, the Dorians invaded from land and the Ionians were people of the Isles. So it kind of makes sense. But uh, OK. Anyway, so there's there is an ethnic difference. And, uh, you know, Sparta is a complicated society. Very complicated. <laughs> <laughs> it's very, like, intense. Extremely intense. And, you know, there's a lot of myth and stuff about them. And. I honestly don't know the details of their government because it, it is kind of complicated, just like the Athenian one. But like, I don't think they had like a king, so to say. It was more of like this like oligarchy. Like they had a bunch of like ruling elites. I, I don't know, like no nobility. I guess they probably were nobility, so maybe it was an aristocracy. But anyways, it, you know, it's a militarized nation, and their entire ethos was was focused on warfare. But the thing is. This was built on the backs of a subject people who were another Greek tribe. And we don't really know what their original name was, but they just, maybe it's a collection of people, but they're known as the Helots. And these people did all the agricultural work in Sparta. They did all the dirty work, basically, while the elite Spartan, Spartiates or whatever they were called, they all they did was like focus on war. So like they had basically super soldiers of the ancient world where they didn't have to farm. They didn't have to do anything because they had this entire, like, uh, you know, people subjugated that, that did all the work for them. But this was a double-edged sword because they could never leave all of their troops. You know, they could never leave, leave, uh, leave the city undefended because they'd always be afraid that these people would rise up. Hmm. And so like, you know, in the first Persian war, when they don't show up, you know, that's part of it is that they're afraid. They're afraid of the Helots uprising, you know, inciting with the Persians, you know? Well, that actually makes a lot more sense than what I said, which was like, we kind of hate you and we're already having a party. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's more complicated, right? For sure. Well, you didn't know about the, how their society is structured. And I, like, it, it's, I didn't know about it, the Helots. Yeah, yeah. Or the Helots, I think they're also called the Helots. Um, but anyway, so yeah, there's always this kind of underlining menace of slave revolt in Sparta. And it holds them back from really becoming anything more than a, a regional power like uh, because they can never really go out that far you know yeah that makes sense anyways and then so here we have athens which is like kind of the opposite athens has gone through a bunch of crazy different you know tyrants 
forms of government. And But at this time, they are a democracy, and it's become almost radicalized under this guy Pericles, who was you know, a general, um, statesman, a politician, and you know, a, ma- a master speaker, master of rhetoric. Um, and Athens had two factions, you know, as these republics tend to do. I, I don't know if that's the right word, republic, but um, there was a populist faction, you know, uh, that was, you know, ostentatious, vulgar. Uh, and then there was a, a very conservative kind of aristra- uh, aristocratic faction, which was very cautious and, you know. Staunchy. Staunchy, yeah. <laughs> and so, like, you had these two. But Pericles was able to bridge this gap. He was popular in both camps. Well, Pericles was kind of a fucking rock star, right? Like, yeah, Absolutely. I mean, at least the way he's remembered from Thucydides, he's considered one of the greatest, like, Democrats of all time. But I do want to point out, like, in Thucydides, like, all right, it's been a fucking long time since I read it, but, like, we hear, like, all this amazing things about Pericles and Athens, and, like, it's so great. But then, like, we hear about how fucked up the plague was there, and, like, maybe it's not so great. So, like, the whole time we're reading Herodotus, or, sorry, um, Thucydides, his, like, motivation is, I feel like you can call it into question. Just based on his own personal like perspective, but we can get into that. Yeah, I think we'll get into that in the, in the discussion section. But I, I will say this now: like he starts his book, uh, uh, quote, Thucydides, an Athenian, wrote the history of the war between the Peloponnesians and the Athenians, beginning at the moment it, that it broke out, and believing it would be the, a great war and more worthy of relation than any had preceded it. So I think what he's saying there is that. Um, he he wants to record this because he does believe that um, this is going to be really, really epic. Yeah, and, and so he, he had something about, like, this isn't, like, I'm not, like, doing this. Yeah, for sure. Actually, I see that you have that written there. Like, he, he wasn't thinking about just doing this for, like, the people of the current era, right? Like, yeah, that's, what did he say? Like, like, in the second paragraph of it, he says, yeah. I have written my work not as an essay which is to win the applause of the moment, but as a possession for all time. And really, this is a shot at Herodotus, I think. And a lot of people, you know, <laughs> not just me, like a lot of people think that. that uh, you know. Yeah. Uh, but ironically. Said, <laughs> said, this isn't going to be very entertaining. <laughs> no, it's really not. It's not that fun of a read. I'm going to say um, would not recommend. I mean, unless you're like into it. It's a difficult book to read. Uh, there's no doubt about it. But there's a reason we're still talking about it. For sure. No, I mean, if you're into it, definitely. But it's not like one of those ones where it's like, oh, yeah, read this. It's so fun and funny, like Herodotus, you know? Like... Yeah, it's not something you're going to, like, <laughs> give to somebody and expect them to read it because it's just like, <laughs> that's cruel and unusual. <laughs> well, I mean, depending on who your friend is, but, like, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you do want to read it, again, I recommend the Landmark Edition. Uh, the translator is Robert B. Strassler, and I've heard it is an excellent translation. And that has maps, it has commentary, basically on the margins of every page. So it kind of summarizes what Thucydides is saying. Every paragraph is kind of summarized, which can be helpful um, because he does tend to be extremely long-winded, but yeah, and it gets a little dense, and sometimes the translations are not 
always so clear. So yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Having maps is extremely helpful with this one. Um, but anyways, a little bit more about Thucydides. So he took part in this war. Um, he witnessed it firsthand. And when he says, you know, this was a great war, more worthy of relation, I, you know, I think what he means is that this war was a disaster. Mm-hmm. And a great war in the sense that we talk about World War One being a great war, right? Like, the great war. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I think, yeah, in that in that way, and he was right, really, like, this war was a disaster. And many people can, you know, I can make an argument later, I've heard that this kind of doomed Greek civilization, and that they went from this amazing height, this meteoric rise to this meteoric fall, and they became a captive race for thousands of years, you know? So it's a sad story. But um, anyways, a little bit more about Thucydides. So he was from Athens and he was born into kind of like an aristocratic family. They, they owned a large estate in Thrace. We talk about Thrace a lot in the show. So if y'all don't know where that is by now, you should look it up. But it's Northern Greece, like kind of where Greece connects to Asia. Uh, so that area. That's where his family was from, and I think he was pretty wealthy. Um, but he was a politician in Athens, and he became a general, which was kind of what you were expected to do in the ancient world in a lot of places, that if you are saying, you know, we need to do something, you're expected to lead it, you know, you're expected to do it. So he was given command uh, of, a, of a force and, mm-hmm. and sent to a battle and uh, in his hometown there. But uh, the battle turned out to be a disaster, and we'll get to it later. But he was blamed for the battle, and he was he was exiled from the city. Uh, rightly or wrongly, that's what happened. He tries to defend himself, but it's not very convincing. Um, he does speak to the disaster of the battle that he was blamed for. So he doesn't really brush over it. It was a disaster. Mm-hmm. But anyways, he was blamed for it, and you know we talked about ostracism last time you know he was one of the guys that was ostracized but it was for 20 years not 10 years oh shit okay but so what happened you know so he was forced to retire from politics and kicked out of his hometown and he went back to these estates that his family owned and he, he was essentially an independently wealthy gentleman and he was able to travel the greek world and record the war because he, you know, got fired, basically. <laughs> any of this making sense so far? <laughs> None of it makes any sense at all. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, let's get, get back into this climate after the Persian War and this inevitable, you know, this in, untenable peace. And so here we have Athens with this giant navy and this quote-unquote, you know, coalition that is, you know, behind them, but really they're forcing all these people to pay and it's almost like a little mini version of what the Persians were up to. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. People weren't into it. People started to seriously resent them and, you know, probably for a really good reason because they were being really full of shit, you know, (laughs) they were being dicks about it. (laughs) They were being dicks. And meanwhile, you have Sparta, which has always been, equally power or has always been the dominant power in greece athens is an upstart you mm-hmm. know sparta's been there for a long time and um you know we talked about these two different ethnicities the dorian and the ionian and one of the things about greek civilization and we talked about this last time is that 
the city was kind of the the largest entity, the political entity that they could conceive. Yeah, that they were like exactly. This was like it for them. However, the thing with your city is if it prospers, it starts getting too big and you can't provide for all the people there. So they came up with this system of colonies. And so, so it's almost like a nation, I guess. But it's like if your city made a, made a call, if your city made a, its own colony and then the Athenian people living there, it's, it is kind of like a nation, I guess. But so like a bunch of these little nations, maybe. But it, so anyways, these cities would get too big. And they'd send people off to start colonies in other places. And so you have all these little colonies dotting the Aegean and the Mediterranean. And they all, you know, really started by Athens or Corinth or Sparta or, or you know, some city at some point, you know. Okay, so these so, are like little outposts of the cities themselves. They're like little outposts. And some of them became incredibly powerful, like, over time. The ones in Italy and in, uh, in France, Marseille was a Greek colony. Hmm. Um Anyways, yeah, these colonies could become more successful than their than their starter cities. But so the the Greek civilization did have that character where it's almost like a like a leaf or like a tree would, you know, loose all its fruit and then the fruit would sprout up elsewhere and form new trees that were, you know, akin to the original tree but not the, not the original tree. Sure. Yeah. Good metaphor. Thanks. Um so anyways, this this is the climate. Um Basically, Athens is cruising around the Mediterranean and subjugating all these independent cities who have ancestral ties to their mother mother colony, their mother city. And this causes a ton of resentment within, you know, the population of the mother city, you know. And eventually this comes to a head with this rebellion in 440 BC, this rebellion, the Samos Rebellion. And this is a Athenian subject city that actually gets aid from the Persians and the Persians offer them a satrapy or whatever. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Uh, governorship. I don't know. Satrapy. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not exactly sure. Um, if anybody knows, please, uh, please tell us. So, anyways, this is a big problem for Athens. All of a sudden, they had this city that's rebelled against them and their quote coalition. They they're getting help from Persia all of a sudden, and they're asking help from Sparta. Now, this thing doesn't become. Mm an all-out war but the soft peace that had endured before this it was called the 30 years peace because there had been a lot of minor wars before this this Mm -hmm. had been coming to a head but this really was the degeneration of that peace and athens felt really threatened kind of like the persians yeah they're like oh so you're talking to those guys that have been talking to the persians eh right (laughs) and it's like well this this city just rose up against us and these other people are kind of helping them yeah you know exactly what athens was doing with the ionian revolt and and look what that (laughs) (laughs) it's just like yeah it's just kind of this horrible irony of it um that they're behaving very much like an empire at this at this point all of these notions of protecting Greece from the Persians, all of that's kind of gone out the window at this point. And so it's been like 30 years, right? This is starting in 440 BC. And I believe the end, the last Persian war was like maybe 11 years earlier. I think oh, okay. So that's not even the, the major battles yeah. were, were 40 years earlier, but I think the like official peace wasn't until, 10 years so there's not enough time to have passed to say that like 
you know, there's a generational difference. These new, the new generation doesn't quite understand what the old generation was up to or whatever. Like that's not at play here. No, I think that is at play. I mean, because like, yeah, those, the, the Mithyades and the, the Themistocles, those epic heroes from the Persian war, those guys are long gone. Right. Like, and so I, I, you know, I think that, I think that probably is part of it. Okay. And these new, these new upstart Athenians, well, you know, this is a very unpredictable society. And, you know, Pericles is pretty good, but at the same time, you know, he's a staunch patriot for Athens. And, like, they believe, he believes what they're doing is right and that Athens is great and that Athens' greatness needs to shine, like, is this, like, beacon for the world. And, like, you can kind of see why he would say that because it really was great, like culturally, philosophically. They had some cool shit going on for sure. They really did. Like it was probably the greatest city in the world at that time, as far as learning, you know, thinking that kind of stuff. Like we're still talking about all those guys today. Like it really was a special place. And mm-hmm. yeah, no doubt. Uh, but you know, guys like Pericles got kind of full of themselves, and you know, he, he's a complicated figure because. Thucydides really does respect him. I, you know, he worked with him. Once he died, when Pericles died, things went downhill. But any, anyways, so so basically Athens is just kind of belligerent. And they come to a head with a city called Corinth, which is probably the third greatest city in Greece. And it's right in between Athens and Sparta in this little isthmus, which connects the Peloponnese to mainland Greece. And the Peloponnese is basically an island, and that's where Sparta is. But there's this little tiny, narrow, you know, stretch of land that connects it to mainland Greece, and that's where Corinth is. And it's a super strategic place. Oh, you could yeah. Tra- you could transport ships from one side to the other through Corinth. So Corinth was another great city of the ancient world. You know, that's where St. Paul showed up, you know, and was preaching. You know, like, uh, But anyways, Athens is fighting a war with them, and they... Corinth is Dorian and they're an ally of Sparta and Sparta's, you know, or Athens is supporting one of their quote allies, which, you know, they're, they're bullying these guys and eventually they bully them into submission and they order them to tear down all their walls. So like they can no longer defend themselves, basically like uh, you just have to just like, you're going to be like completely at our mercy. Exactly. And this was the last straw for Sparta. Uh, they call the a council with their allies and they form this, you know, Peloponnesian league to fight the Athenians Delian league. And it's basically the start of the war. But so we have these two leagues, these two coalitions, but they're both led by their cities and that's Sparta and Athens. So this is really the showdown of the future of Greece. Like which city, which model is going to win? All right. So we've got these two leagues, the Delian league and the Peloponnesian league. And shit is about to get thrown down right basically this has been brewing for years and years and years but they've been able to negotiate these little truces you know make compromises avoid the war but all these truces end up disintegrating i mean okay and so when the athenians tell the corinthians like tear down your fucking walls like you could almost see I mean, strategically, obviously, this is bad for Sparta, but, like, also, it must grate on the Spartan, like, ethos, right? Like, as such a warlike people, like, this this kind of, like, subjugation, this, like, whole, like, yeah, like, 
tear down your walls and be naked before us. They're behaving like the Persians, right? Yeah, and culturally, like, this, you can kind of see where, ideologically, this could be a last straw. Like, you know, it makes sense. Yeah. Well, it's just like, if if they're going to do this to Corinth, who's next, you know? They're not just, like, making these people do this stuff, but they're forcefully incorporating them into this empire. They're, they're making them give money, give soldiers, that kind of stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. So yeah, Sparta reaches a breaking point and they declare war. And, and okay, so and the Athenians are the aggressors here in this conflict in the beginning. Maybe I guess it is really complicated though, so I, I, it's probably not fair to quite say it that simply. Yeah, it's definitely more complicated than that. My personal opinion would be yes that they maybe weren't the aggressors, but they were definitely belligerents that destabilized everything. And I don't know what other choice they left the spartans ultimately Mm -hmm. right like you know submit or don't you know um i I don't really like athenians were a ship without a rudder i think in a lot of ways and when you had a guy like pericles at the helm you know yeah he could steer the ship some but even then he could only do it with like things like rhetoric and and persuasion it wasn't like he had dictatorial powers you know well and you see that yeah you see this like these this nation getting like all riled up with all this like amazing rhetoric he really was a fucking rock star and like making all of these i don't know fucking emotional decisions based on that shit and like the disaster that it leads to i don't know yeah no i think that people's um exploiting people's passion was something that happened a lot in athens and could could be one of the explanations you know, as, as the major shortcoming and why they, mm. you know, made all these bad decisions. And Yeah. I feel like our passions are never exploited nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> of course not. We're way different than the people in history. Um, anyway. So yeah, this is the start of the war. And so there's two, there's two strategies to this. The Spartan King, whose name I'm not even going to try and pronounce. Um, you know, Sparta, Sparta is a infantry force. They have these elite ground troops. It makes no sense to put them in boats and to, you know, so, yeah, we're going to invade. That's, like, and... not their deal. Like, they ha- yeah, they have these giant... Sh- they Didn't they have a fucking saying that, like, you should either come home bearing your shield or on your shield? Like, because they had yeah. these giant shields that, like, you couldn't run away while you were carrying one of these fucking things, right? So, like... The saying was yeah. like, either win or die, right? <laughs> like, yeah, don't come back. Like, don't retreat. Don't come back. Don't, if if yeah. you retreat, don't come back. Like, yeah. go somewhere else. Like, you're not welcome here anymore. So that that's a little insight into the Spartan mindset. Oh, God. There's so much, like, there's myth so about much. them. God, there's so like, much. The thing about their babies, I don't know if that's true, but, it like, they'd leave it out in the elements, and if it cried, they would just, like, let it die. But if it didn't... I don't know if that's true, but that's I've, like one myth I've heard. That's quite a tall tale. But yeah, they definitely seemed hella intense. <laughs> they were hella intense. So yeah, anyways, so they go to war. Like they're not fucking around. Like they don't do this lightly, you know, because they have this, these slave populations, you know, back at home. Like they don't really like leaving Sparta, to be honest, uh, mm-hmm. but they do. And so they march into, into the Attica and they besiege Athens. Now, Pericles had anticipated this, and he did not want to fight the Spartans on land because that was playing right into their strong point. Mm -hmm. And they had built these massive fortifications. And when they told the 
Corinthians to tear down their walls. Well, that's because they had just built their own giant walls and everybody else had kind of copied them. Um, but so Athens had basically connected their port, Piraeus. Uh, sorry, I butchered that. Um, <laughs> they had connected that to Athens with this fortification system, this, this ring of walls. It's called the Long Walls. And so they could withstand siege. These are impressive walls that, you know, they took, took a lot of time and money to build these walls. And the Spartans, I don't think they really had a lot of siege weaponry. Um, I'm not sure if that was really their thing or not. But anyways, so the Athenians could get to their ships whenever they wanted to. And so Pericles strategy was, okay, well, we're going to surrender the countryside. And that means they're going to loot and despoil all of our farms and vineyards and everything like that. Like, we're going to just have to surrender that. That's the price of this war. Mm-hmm. So, but we it'll, have our It'll ships. disperse them out. They'll be out there busy doing all that shit. We'll still have all of our stuff here. It makes sense. Yeah, you could come behind the walls. You'll be safe here. They won't be able to break free. And while they're sieging us, we can go down to our ships. We can get in them and we can sail down to the Peloponnese and we can cause all kinds of trouble down there because guess what? Their army's up here sieging us. So yeah. this is Pericles' strategy. And Which makes it, sense. It was, yeah, it does. Yeah, I mean, they're playing right into their strong point, which is their navy. And they built these walls for a reason, and they're going to use them. And if that means surrendering all the countryside, so be it. They're just going to have to get that stuff back in other ways. Uh, it should be mentioned also that Athens is a major importer of grain at this time. It is not a self-sufficient city. They need to import grain from like the Black Sea area, so I think like Ukraine, that area. Um, So that's just something to remember. Yeah. So the ports in this case are much more important than the countryside. For Athens, definitely. You know, it's not the countryside that you're getting the food resources from. It's, it's your ports. It's from importing it. So exactly. Fuck the countryside. Like let, let the Spartans take it, let them go waste their time with that shit while they're busy doing that. We can go do our own they won't thing. be yeah exactly yeah. they won't be able to siege us out because we have our navy and we yeah. can import food and that's been our whole thing the whole time right yep and so i think like there's a lot of debate about this strategy because you know athens does go on to lose the war and people look back at pericles and say well it's his fault you know he's the one who got him into the war and he was so confident that they could win that they probably could have negotiated a peace at, at, at many, many times yeah. and stopped being so belligerent. And none of this, all this could have been avoided. Yeah, right? man, they could have. They could have definitely, like, whatever, sued for peace or whatever, like, or made different choices. We'll, we'll get into also, there were some Absolutely. choice, some, some very, maybe, like, in hindsight, stupid choices made um, by the Athenians. Yeah. So, but yeah. But when you get back to Pericles' strategy, and I think examining it today i think it's fair to say that it was a good strategy and it could have worked and it was working but something happened that you know one of these events uh these fortune the wheel of fortune spun in the wrong way for the athenians (laughs) and this this plague plague broke out in athens this horrible plague and we're not exactly sure what it was a lot of people say tuberculosis uh, I'm, I'm not sure what it was, but they call it the plague of Athens. Some people think it might have been bubonic. Maybe, yeah, uh, maybe. Plague too. And you can see this, us as moderns who have, you know, 
much more intimate knowledge about sanitation and bacteria and stuff like that. Well, yeah, if you're going to have a siege, you have all these people packed together, you know, mm-hmm. it's a recipe for, you know, for a pen, for a breakout, for an epidemic. Uh, and that's what yeah, happened. And I think that we, yeah, we do see that time and time again in sieges. I think that is one of the concerns, right? Yeah. And not only that, they got these boats going out all over the different place with people mm. coming back, you know, so they're, you know, not, they're sieged in, but yet they're also exposed to all these other foreign cities at the same time. So, yeah, yeah. like we, we recognize today that that's a bad mixture mm-hmm. and it was. And so this plague happened and Pericles dies in this plague. Uh, so here is this guy who's been holding everything together in Athens that, Athens is an unstable place, but you know you have these aristocrats that want to go back to the old ways. They want want to have an oligarchy, but you have these democrats that want more power. The people want to take away stuff from the old guard. But here you have Pericles standing as this colossus between the two camps and bridging the gap and being beloved. Basically, just by talking about how fucking great we are because we're Athenians. Yeah. Right. And he's dead, and everybody's like, oh, fuck. I can uh, <laughs> like... read you a little passage from his funeral oration. Now, yeah, this man. is not actually a quote from Pericles because Thucydides <laughs> was not here. He's like, uh, I'm going to kind of sum it up the way I heard yeah, it. I don't remember exactly, but. Uh... Something about Thucydides <laughs> is that he uses these speeches that are not direct quotes, they are summaries. Um, they are his his version of the speech. They are that his, he heard. and we'll talk about this in the discussion point. Like this is some major <laughs> issue for some people. There, there's a lot of people have a lot of questions about these speeches. But yes. I'll just read this, and you can, you know, this is actually pretty good. So uh, this is, a, you know, from the Pericles funeral oration where he is honoring the dead of this heroic war. This is at the end of the first year of war with Sparta, and they've made all these sacrifices, and so he's at this funeral for one of the dead or maybe it's multiple dead, but here's what he says, according to Thucydides, quote, the whole earth is the sepulcher of famous men. They are honored not only by columns and and inscriptions in their own land, but in foreign nations, on memorials graven not on stone, but in the hearts and minds of men, end quote. Ah, so romantic. But also so fucking problematic, right? <laughs> like, I really like that Again, one. yeah, I like it a lot too, dude. It reminds me a lot of what we talked about with Caesar, though. This kind of thinking about, like, the quest for glory and where does it lead us? And yes, absolutely, but very romantic, for sure. <laughs> and so, yeah, this guy was a great speaker and he was beloved. And now he's dead. And their entire strategy was basically his idea. <laughs> but basically, like, this guy and his coolness is going to carry us through this war. Basically, dude. <laughs> like, Honestly, that's kind of yes. what it was. Yeah. Basically, he was he was like a fucking rock star or maybe like a almost like a fucking it was almost like a cult of personality. Oh, it definitely was. Like, yeah, like, I don't know. Yeah. And I think he's been so, called the tyrant of the masses. I don't, I don't know who ca- called him that. Probably Plutarch or something, but. <laughs> probably fucking stinky old Plutarch. <laughs> yeah, he comes up a lot as this thing. The very... bitterest of all. <laughs> yeah, super curmudgeon y. <laughs> well, we're going to get to some of his stuff in this one too. Uh, but, anyways, yeah, so Pericles is dead. And all of a sudden, Athens, which was potentially going to win this war, everybody kind of agreed that if they followed Pericles' model, 
they could win the war. He convinced everybody. Oh, I mean, yeah, why not? I mean, he's so great. Well, I mean, I think it was a good strategy. Anyways, th yeah. things have turned disastrous <laughs> because this plague has broken out and Pericles is dead. A bunch of other people are dead. A bunch of people are dying in the streets and it gets so bad that soldiers refuse to continue the siege and they withdraw to... Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, they just leave. They're like, yeah, we're not like interested in having this city anymore. It's too gross. Let's get out of here. <laughs> yep. They just leave. And so this is kind of the end of the first stage of the war. Um, but so like the, the, the implications of this, now that Pericles is dead, is that Athens needs a new policy. This one they have isn't working. Uh, and if they're going to win the war, they got to they gotta do some stuff. They can't just sit here and die of disease. Even the Spartans, okay. you know, they've left. But Yeah. So Athens is in a fucking, like, they're in a desperate, this, so, okay, we can kind of see, like, this is almost like a desperate situation for them now, right? Like Absolutely. Like, so their decision-making isn't going to be quite as on point as it might have been were they not so fucking desperate. That's a good point. No, that's a, that's a really good point. But so one of Pericles' main successors in the assembly is this guy by the name of Cleon. And Thucydides makes it very clear that he is not a fan of this man. And he has personal, uh, you know, enmity against him. They've had some bad blood. He doesn't really go into it, but there is some speculation. Was Cleon instrumental in getting... Thucydides exiled or getting him blamed for the way that the battle turned? That's definitely the narrative that other historian, historians have put forth or people just analyzing it. That was one thing that I wondered like the first time I read it, I was like this is obviously personal, right? And he, I think he actually does say that this is personal like I know this dude, he's a dick, I hate him, like here's all of his shortcomings, I don't know. Yeah, he, don't he makes it very clear that he does not like him. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure if he like condemns him as evil or bad, but he will explain basically his failings. Like, yeah, he's like this. These are let me list his many shortcomings. Yeah, like, basically, yeah. And so, according to Thucydides, this is how Cleon behaved in the agora or in the assembly. He was kind of like the anti-Pericles, and he was like a staunch populist and he would apparently flash people like lift up his toga and like wave his junk at people to like make his point. <laughs> 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 so this guy, here he is in the assembly and people are getting a kick. It's almost like Trump a little bit. Like he, like he went God, against dude, the, yes. uh, Jesus. yeah, like the etiquette. Like he, his like flagrant disrespect for the oh, etiquette. Oh, so what a fucking breath of fresh air that this person is making these lewd comments in public. <laughs> great. How great he is. <laughs> Interesting character. And so he's kind of the leader of the populist faction. And then the guy that inherits the leadership of the conservative faction is this guy named Nicias. And he's a veteran of many battles. He's extremely respected. He's very cautious, very conservative, you know, a well-loved guy in Athens. But is he as fun? I mean, like, we're used to Pericles. Like, I mean... <laughs> he was not as fun or as charismatic. He, he was not charismatic at all. He was very soft-spoken yeah. and cautious and 
not this flamboyant sounds, like, like Cleon like flashing actual, himself like, like I mean, Pericles, a reasonable like, person not like yeah so unfortunately that's not always uh the most popular politician like the person that would be best for the job isn't usually the person that people end up choosing unfortunately it seems like well Cleon Cleon is an interesting character and and part some people think that Thucydides has slandered him. This next stay, this next story of the war, is called the Battle of Spectaria, and this is a little island off of the Peloponnese, across from the ancient city of Pylos, which was around during the days of the Iliad. This is an ancient city in the Peloponnese, probably second or third only to Sparta. Um, really important city. And while the Athenians have suffered all these defeats, they've had their lands ravaged and they've been humiliated. Uh, all these people have died of plague. Well, they're not done. They're not defeated. And Cleon, by the way, is a major hawk. And he says, you know, we can't win the war by doing this. We got to take the fight to the Spartans. And they come up with this plan and they go to this little island across from the city of Pylos, this Isle of Sphacteria, and they land some troops on the island. And, you know, it's not well defended. They immediately, you know, subdue what, what little troops the Spartans have there, and they start building a fortification on the island. And this is right across from the harbor of the city of Pylos. So this is, uh, this is unacceptable, basically. Um, now, what the Greeks do is they land these troops. I'm sorry, what the Athenians do is they land these troops and then they, the Navy sails off and they go off to attack some other city. And the Spartans say, okay, well, this, you know, we can't just let them sit there and build a fortress right across from us. They land 440 Spartans on this island. And these are their elite troops. These are the best of the best, the Spartiate class. These are the guys that trained, you know, 24-7. And, uh, okay, yeah. These are like the Navy SEALs or however yeah, you want to say yeah. it. Of, yeah. Of the day, yeah. Definitely. And so they land this force and they're, you know, preparing for battle with the Athenians on the island. And all of a sudden the fleet comes back. You know, they got tricked into thinking they had gone left. But really it was it was a trick. And so I think they sailed around like a, an island off in the distance and they turned around and they came back. And so all these Spartan troops were stranded on this island and the Athenians completely surrounded them with their massive Navy. And there was a battle that ensued uh, of these 440 Spartans that uh, had crossed only 292 survived and they chose to surrender rather than die. And of that 120 were these elite class that were not supposed to surrender. They were supposed to die. You know, come back on your shield, right? Like like mm -hmm. you were saying. Yeah. They surrendered. 120 of them. Uh, and and uh, most of them died, you know, or, or a good chunk of them died. But some of them chose to surrender. And this sent shockwaves throughout the entire Greek world. That all of a sudden, you know, Athens had just turned the tide. Like, and they had these guys as captives. And they brought them back to Athens. So it was just really a clever feint on their part that kind of undermined the whole Spartan philosophy. 
I think they tricked him. Yeah. Now, dude. Yeah, it was just a feint, right? Like, it was just yeah. like, oh no, I'm I'm leaving. Ha ha. Just kidding. It, like, and it was I, an right? unacceptable like, provocation that they had to do something about. It. Yeah. Like, I think that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it, what you said is probably a good way of putting it. Um, now, Thucydides kind of implies that this was like an accident. That really, this should have been a disaster, but the fleet came back because they forgot something or something. But okay. <laughs> No, other people have said this is obviously a man- like a maneuver. Like this is a strategy that I, worked. I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say, right? <laughs> like... So Thucydides does not like this Cleon guy, and he doesn't want to give him any credit. So he's like basically begrudgingly gives him credit with this major victory. Like <laughs> this is like a potential huge turning point in the war, and all of a sudden, the Athenians who had been starved out were dying of plague you know had to watch their lands get looted and ravaged now they got 120 of these basically the ruling class of sparta these guys that were kind of like the you know worth their weight in gold like those those knights in the middle ages when they'd get captured you know yeah like so like we don't really yeah we don't like really have this anymore in the modern world right like so like when you hear this number of like these 120 dudes or whatever like it doesn't really sound like that much to us but like that's because we don't have the same concept of like well, we're not in all of they weren't yeah. yeah they weren't they weren't just navy seals or, like, like imagine if they were navy seals and also like the ceos of corporations or something like is that uh, yeah enough and to, senators like, like, like <laughs> Yeah, and senators, <laughs> yeah, 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 that. <laughs> so it, it was like an oligarchic society, and these guys were like the the top of it, you know. Um, so Athens has scored this major victory. Cleon is praised, a hero. He is given a public dinner at this place that is usually reserved for Olympians, and he's the Ooh. toast of the town. And Nikki... do you think he whipped it out during his dinner? <laughs> <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I mean, he had, a, he had a brand, move. yeah. Like he had a brand. You gotta, it's on brand. Yeah, you got to stick with it, right? <laughs> got to give the people what they want. And so all of a sudden, Spider is like kind of on the back foot. Their strategy, they can no longer invade Attica because the Athenians are threatening to execute these people if they do. And that, to them, is just unacceptable. Uh, I think the loss of that many of their ruling elite would be just... They'd rather just not fight the war Dude. than have those guys back. Yeah. You know, like... Not to mention that they fucking surrendered in the first place, but then to have them executed on top of that, like that has got a sting, yeah. right? Like, yeah. And so they could, yeah. So this was like the, and the Athenians went out and they started re-inhabiting the countryside because they had this kind of tenuous truce that, you know, the Peloponnesians couldn't invade Attica again or, or these guys would get killed. So what the Spartans did is they came up with this new strategy and this was, from the, a guy named Brasidas, who was one of the most clever commanders of this war. He's a Spartan general. And so his plan was to take another small force. This is a tiny force by our standards. So 600 hoplites, which I think these are, again, the elite guys. Like, these are the good guys, these 600. And then 1,000 of their slaves, these halots, which I think are basically, like, their personal slaves so they can, like, keep an eye on them and... They're also like they're like squires and they, they also. Okay. Yeah. I was going to say they sound like kind of like squires. Yeah. And they help them fight and shit. Like, you know, I, I don't really know the relationship or I don't, I don't really know, but that's what, you know, it's a small force. And 
his whole thing was that he was kind of he would have done really well in Athens, this Brasidas guy, because he was super charming and super daring. And the thing about him, though, is that he backed it up. And so he decides to take this little skeleton force and march around Attica north through Thessaly into northern Greece. And they're going to do what the Athenians have been doing, which is sailing all over the place and bullying all these little individual cities into joining them. Well, we're going to start doing that to you, basically. <laughs> so he takes this force up and you know, the Athenians don't even realize this has happened. Like he's kind of slipped by him and all of a sudden he's in Northern Greece in Thrace. And uh, this is a, this is a potential disaster for the Athenians because they need to get their grain from the Black Sea and Thrace is, you know, where that connects. It, it goes through Thrace. And so if they're cut off from their grain, they could be starved out. They could be sieged. And so they have to, they have to defeat this guy. And this is where our, our, lovely narrator comes into the story Thucydides <laughs> Thucydides is a, a general who's from this area he's from Thrace his family has estates there he knows the terrain he knows the people he knows all the, the, the local leaders and stuff like that and so he is sent to Thrace with a, a naval force and uh, you know to, to stop this uh, Brasidas guy and what ends up happening is this Brasidas guy he was kind of like Caesar, I guess, where he was able to convince people to join him without fighting. He was really good at that. And so he's kind of joining, he's convincing all these people in Northern Greece to join them, and he's not defeating them. And they're actually sending troops to bolster his army. So his army is growing. He's kind of like living off the land and growing this army as he goes and getting all these cities that had kind of said they were loyal to Athens, but turned out they really weren't that loyal when this guy shows up. And so he's, he's causing this major problem. And, you know, so they're going to send Thucydides there. He knows the area. We're going to stop him. And what ends up happening is Thucydides is off at some island, and we're not really sure why he's there. And he never says. It's not far from the city that ends up being taken. And this is a city called Amphipolis. Amphipolis. And this is an important city for the Athenians. It's a colony of theirs. Uh, it's at the mouth of a river on the coast. And so I think grain shipments could come down this river and it's like a little island. It's like a super defensible little island and the river goes by one side and then there's cliffs and oceans on the other side. So it's like a okay, yeah. fortress city. For sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, Brasidas gets there. He shows up and they're not expecting him. And uh, they send word for Thucydides to come help. And, Whatever reason, it takes him like a day to get there. He claims he just didn't have enough time. But in the meantime, the city has surrendered. And Brasidas has been able to convince the people. I think he might have even known like one of their leaders personally. And they mm -hmm. were able to come to really good terms. Like he, you know, they weren't going to do anything bad to them. They could switch sides. They yeah. Could, like he, he. Okay. So Brasidas like shows up before Thucydides basically pulls a Caesar. And by the time Thucydides can get there, I'm assuming on a ship, right? Like yep. he shows up it, with his fleet. It could even, it could even have been a question of like fucking winds or whatever. Who knows? Who knows? But, like, yeah. He, when he shows up, by the time he fucking gets there, like Brasidas is already fucking like wormed his way into this shit. And he's like, well, fuck, I didn't even have any chance at all. Yet he's still fucking blamed for this shit, right? Like, yes. and that's got to rankle, right? Like, 
so yeah, the city has fallen without a fight. And uh, this is, again, an important city. And Fuck yeah. And and he didn't really get the chance to fucking do what he was commanded to do, right? Well, some people yeah. say, well, where the hell was he? Why was he at this little island? Like, he should have been there in the first place. I don't really know. Like, it's still open to a lot of... I don't of, know. Uh, <laughs> Who knows? A, a, a fierce debate still rages on where Thucydides was yeah. and is he to blame, but... And he- it's so funny it could it it could have been any like funny strange little cork right that prevented it who knows knows? yeah interesting right yeah he doesn't really try to make excuses other than he says he didn't have time to get there so well maybe it was just like a wins thing or maybe it was like he was doing something that he hella didn't like want to talk about and (laughs) won't admit like who knows what he was really up to right like (laughs) but yeah the fact of the matter is yeah he gets there the city's fallen now there is a nearby city that's also loyal to athens uh i'm just gonna call it ion e-i-o-n ion i'm not okay yeah ion ion Ion? i'm not sure um and they're able to actually, so Thucydides does arrive there with some of the people that were able to get out of the city uh, of Amphipolis, and they defend that city successfully from Brasidas. And Brasidas is, he has to go back, you know, he's kind of actually stopped there, but he's, you know, clearly won this huge victory. And um, Thucydides is recalled to Athens, and he is blamed for this disaster, and he is exiled from the city for 20 years. And that's why we have this lovely account. All right, so this is the point where I'm wondering, okay, after this, like this, it's got to suck for him, right? This is a shitty thing to have happen to you, probably, right? I think <laughs> like, he was pissed, dude. Yeah, dude. I think that the, I think that his whole history of the Peloponnesian War is like this kind of like obsessive quest to like explain what like weird like shame that he has about this perceived failure yeah this is just my own interpretation obviously but like i like it i don't know it I, we see a lot of passion like people call his work objective but i don't know if i agree with that i would almost fucking argue that herodotus is more objective because he just reports what people tell him we can get back to this in the yeah discussion yeah we'll get back to though. this because yeah this is good stuff um and that's all fair. Like it really is fair. Like I think we do kind of remember him in a in a light that might not be so much accurate for himself. You know, it's more of what he inspired. I think is where people get lost mm-hmm. in that. Um, what he tried to sure. do. Sure, you know, and I mean, what is, what is definitely yeah, like his stated methods and that kind of stuff. But um, but yeah, so here we have Thucydides. He has just lost this humiliating battle and. He's blamed for it. He's kicked out of the city. And all of a sudden, Sparta has won a, a stunning kind of victory over Athens. And yeah, so they've both kind of exchanged these sucker punches when they weren't really expecting it. And, uh, you know, they've, they've both kind of been humiliated. And anyways, Cleon is not happy about this. And he leads an army personally up there to take care of this Brassidus guy. And this becomes a disaster. Um, and Thucydides kind of relishes in the failure and blames him. Um, <laughs> one, of the, one of the things that Brassidus had been able to do was make an alliance with the 
Macedonian king. And that's a name that we're going to hear again near the end of the episode. But um, this was, uh, you know, a Greek-like people in the north of uh, north of Greece. And uh, they were starting with the, with the Spartans. You know, the Athenians had made a lot of enemies. Uh, a lot of people were deciding to side with the Spartans. So he, he had, you know, marched this tiny skeleton force into northern Greece and all of a sudden turned a bunch of cities against the Athenians and then took this really important city of them from without a, without a, even a fight. So this was a disaster for Athens. And they ha- I guess they had to blame someone. So... <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i know and that's the other thing too like yeah this idea of like scapegoating and all this stuff like again without pericles we see the fucking wheels starting to come off of this whole kind of mentality that the athenians have embraced yeah it's just it's just unstable you know because like it's open to the whims of the assembly and whoever's in vogue whoever as a good speech that day well maybe they're gonna you know i don't know yeah it, it's yeah man it, i mean interesting stuff and a lot of it um some of the stuff that some of like the stoic philosophers had kind of warned against too so interesting too that that within this society where this is happening we also see people talking about the dangers of this type of thought like right away <laughs> yeah and like a guy like pericles there, there's a lot of similar guys in history i mean i think caesar's kind of one of them but um oh yeah this is a classic archetype right like yeah another guy that really springs to mind is bismarck and he was able to kind of hold all of europe together with these kind of personal agreements and charisma and all these great diplomacy like really really good diplomacy but it mm-hmm. it was such a a fragile web or intricate web that the people that came after him just could never fill that, fill his shoes. And that was kind of one of the deteriorations that kind of led to the war. The world war one was that the Bismarckian system. So, all right. So anyways, Thucydides continues. Cleon has led this force up into Northern Greece to try and get rid of Brasidas and battle happens the Greeks are disastrously defeated and Cleon is killed during the battle. And the Spartans are said to only have lost seven men, according to Thucydides. But one of those seven killed was Brasidas. And without him, that little force up there lost its its dynamic well, leader. You know, Brasidas was their Pericles. He was. He was. a Yeah. And so he he died of one of only seven guys, which probably says he was like at the front fighting in the very front, you know. Which is a very cool Brasidas slash Pericles thing to do, right? Like, although I don't think Pericles was actually no, Pericles was like back home, like chilling, drinking wine, and like writing. By that time, Brasidas was yeah, he he was old by that time. I think he was in his fifties or sixties, but he had he had fought, you know. He wasn't like some okay, yeah, like scribe or something. But anyways, so that's the result of this second battle of uh, Amphipolis, which is a decisive victory for the Spartans. The first one wasn't really a battle. They just kind of took the city. This was a victory. And Cleon is killed. Uh, Sparta uh, Sparta has won a major victory over Athens and a bunch of other cities decided to switch sides. And Athens is basically, uh, they've lost another leader. You know, they were kind of following Cleon, but now he's dead too. So 
the guy who kind of steps in to fill the void at this point is this is kind of the only guy left in the room, the snickiest guy, who is this soft-spoken, you know, well-to-do older gentleman who would much rather just like go fishing and retire than fight in wars and shit, but he doesn't really have a choice. He's kind of like the best they have, so he has to do it. Yeah, and there's been these two kind of like firebrand dudes before him that's got everybody all riled up and now we're at war and it's too late to fucking turn back at this point because Sparta's pissed and like so well, what are you gonna do? We actually get something called the Peace of Nicias. Oh, okay. Where excellent. So what is he how does he how does he fucking pull this off, man? Alright, it's pretty simple. It's like, alright, both sides we call a truce, we're gonna come together and it's almost like a, a white a white piece where everything just goes back to how it was. The Spartans are supposed to return the city of Amphipolis back to the Athenians, and the Athenians are supposed to give back all those captives that they took. So it was like, let's just like let's have like a do-over. <laughs> yeah, let's have a mulligan. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so yeah, that was kind of the agreement. But according to Cydides, one of the stipulations of this agreement, the guy who was in charge of the Spartan force when he got in Amphipolis, when he got word of this, he asked if he could just neglect it since, you know, they held the city and fuck the Athenians. So it was... <laughs> okay, so, so there was... A, okay, so the cracks in the command structure, possibly? I'm not exactly sure, but it's basically like the negotiation was doomed to fail from the very beginning because the Spartans had no intention of ever honoring it. Kind of what okay. it seems like. Because okay. they well, felt like I mean, they had maybe... a position of power at this point. Yeah, I guess at the at this point, like the Athenians are like, oh yeah, sorry about all that f- kind of fucked up shit that we did, and like, sort of like s- forced you guys to go to war with us. But like, we're kind of in a bad way. Like, do you want to just like forget about it? And like, the Spartans are like, sure, I guess, but fuck you, still. Yeah, <laughs> like, I'm not exactly sure. Like, like... there, there is the question of bias when we talk about these things because. We call it the Peloponnesian War, not the Attic War. You know, mm-hmm. like the Peloponnesians yeah. are the bad guys. Like there definitely is a historical bias towards Athens. I, like it's we have fucking Athenian bias in all of the shit that we fucking talk about in Western Civ, right? Like I don't know. <laughs> That's a whole other argument, but it is something yeah, that for should sure. be remembered when you are reading Thucydides. He's from Athens. He loves Athens. Yes. Um, but yet he's also bitter towards of... Athens because they kicked him out of the city and. He felt like, yeah. like it wasn't really his fault, and the the people in the Peloponnese. I don't think he's bitter towards. I don't think he's bitter towards Athens. I think he's bitter towards the leadership of Athens, uh, the democracy that that blamed him. I think. Yeah. No. I th- I think that it's all about the fucking government. Like I think he's hella into like the ideas of Athens, Absolutely. like the culture and stuff. He loves but Athens. like the fucking yeah. But the government, like, and I mean, obviously, I'm sure there's people that are listening that can understand that, like, they love the culture of the place they're from, but maybe they're not super into the government Absolutely. or whatever. Yeah. Like, that, that's a that's a sentiment that many people have probably experienced at one time or another. So, I don't know. Absolutely. Well, and he, like, had a very first-hand seat at this, you know, because he, he was entrusted with command and he failed and he was blamed for it. So... Yeah, it was personal and it, it was humiliating. For sure. And it, yeah, dude. And it, it sounds like it maybe was not super his fault. Like, I feel like if he knew that he fucked up and that's why 
he lost that battle and all that shit, it wouldn't have been like such a fucking thing for him, right? Like, <laughs> I feel like the rest of this dude's life was like, I gotta figure out what the fuck happened and explain it to everybody else so that they'll understand that it wasn't my God, fault. That's so like, interesting to you because that, um, that that tracks like that's kind of his method. Like, look, like it's easy to blame people. Look, see, yeah, see? it's easy to blame people. But here's what here. If you really want to know what happened, then I, I'll show you, you know, like, but I mean, and I think that that's actually really fucking cool because if you really actually do want to know what happened and understand that shit, you really do have to look at it that way and not just in like the kind of shallow po- political or rhetorical way that um, we see from some of the other uh, people that were talking about it. But yeah. Yes. Yeah, so it's a really interesting perspective that he has. Um, and he's welcomed into the enemy camp, basically not as a participant in events, but as a honored, um, an honored elder, basically. Like a fucking bard, if you will. Right. Like, He's there to tell the story, yeah. to fucking like record it. He's not really, you know. Yeah, he's like a traveling scribe. Sure. And you know, he he's uh he has a good family, good reputation and he's well respected, you know. Even though he's blamed for this defeat, he was still, you know, one of the primary men in Athens, you know. Um, and I think a lot of people understood that this is the capricious nature of the of the mob, not necessarily sure. justice being done, you know. Indeed. And we did talk about how the system of ostracism became incredibly corrupt. And I'm not sure to what extent this was true for him in particular, but that was there. So absolutely. Yeah. And people like Cleon, who really gets his personal ire, it makes you wonder. Maybe he did. Sure. Organize. Did Cleon have like a lot more resources maybe than Thucydides? No, I don't think so. He was, I think, more of a lower class gentleman than Thucydides. Hence with all the... Yeah, with the vulgar <laughs> populism. <laughs> Makes sense. Okay. <laughs> all right. But I'm not 100% <laughs> sure about that. Um, I could be wrong. I mean, it's, it's not always like correlative, I guess. So I don't know. But anyway, so we kind of have this kind of reset where the Spartans get their guys back and the Greeks, the Athenians are supposed to get the city back, but they don't. And so they're pissed. And all of a sudden, they want to kind of get get back on the Spartans. But... They're still, quote, honoring this this peace, but they're going to undermine it at any chance. And they they start going around the Peloponnese and trying to turn their allies there against Sparta. So they're kind of doing what Brasidius was doing up north, but in the Peloponnese, around Corinth in that area. And this actually develops into a major battle. And th- this is the Battle of Manitea, which is probably the only really big land battle fought in the war. And... This was almost a major, this was almost the end of the war. Like the allied uh, democratic states, which was Argos, which was, is in the Peloponnese, at Athens leading everything, Arcadia and Manitea, they had all formed this little mini coalition to resist Sparta. And, but Sparta was able to show up just in time and decisively defeat the, uh, the attackers and rescue the city. And if they had lost this battle, they probably would have lost the war. But, you know, they earned their, their medal when, when put to the test on, in a land battle. You know, they won. They showed up just in time because they're never really um, ready to go. They always kind of have to make arrangements before they leave. But anyways, so they win this big, big, big land battle. And we're kind of, you know, back into this stalemate where 
they're not technically at war with each other, but Athens is no longer fucking around in the Peloponnese. They're not. They're no longer fucking with each other, basically. And the, yeah, I mean, I feel like they neither side sort of even has like this will to the whole fucking war in the first place was really just about a a power indifference, right? Like now that now that they've butted heads enough to be like kind of both uh, in a, in their own ways brought to their knees, I guess. I don't know. They don't have what's the fucking point anymore, right? Like Oh yeah, they both had to endure major disasters at this point and So yeah, I mean and the whole fucking the the whole reason they were fighting in the first place was this perceived threat. Like it is so interesting yeah. that it's like we're so scared that we're going to have to go to war with you that we have to go to war with you. It's such an interesting, like fucking self-fulfilling prophecy. I don't know. Like, but here's the thing. Though. Were they wrong? I don't know. I don't fucking know. And that's the crazy thing is we've been asking ourselves the same fucking question for a very long time. And I'm not sure we have the answers yet. But if anybody does, please write us at adhochistorypot at gmail.com. Yeah, I'd love to hear people's perspectives on this because this is a Absolutely. Yeah, fascinating conflict. But anyway, so here we are, and we're kind of at a stalemate, and Cleon is dead, and Brasidus is dead. These are the two major hawks in both camps, by the way. And a new guy starts rising to prominence to challenge the very cautious Nicias, and that is Alcibiades who was a rich, aristocratic charioteer, an Olympic champion. Uh, can we just, can we just, I know this is like an offensive term, but I think it applies really well to Alcibiades because he's sort of an offensive dude. And I'm just going to say it. And I'm so sorry if this offends anybody. Alcibiades was a fuckboy. <laughs> this is another interesting guy. To... Straight up fuckboy. <laughs> now. In Alcibiades' defense, because he's not here to defend himself, I'll just offer <laughs> this that okay. this is according to Thucydides. And that's true. I should say that Thucydides thinks that Alcibiades is a real fuckboy. Thucydides <laughs> despises this man. And throughout history, he has been widely condemned, kind of in that same boat of traitors as like uh, Brutus and uh, Judas. So, yes, history mm -hmm. has not been kind to poor Alcibiades, but <laughs> we will talk a little bit more about maybe there was more to him than meets the eye. But so anyways, sure. more about him. Um, according to Plutarch, I knew he was going to come up. Uh, he was trained by Socrates himself in rhetoric, um, according to Plutarch, hundreds of years after the fact um so the you know, didn't okay but didn't plutarch like fucking hate socrates too like plutarch hated everything <laughs> <laughs> he didn't have anything nice to say about fucking anybody <laughs> actually i haven't read that much of his stuff like it had a real like gross boring i haven't read as much says. as i would like to read and um boy he sure comes up a lot though i feel like i really need to read him yeah well, yeah. Well, we'll probably not? do an episode on him at some point. Um, <laughs> okay. Because he's a Greek living in the Roman world, so it's kind of a different... Uh, that's true, and and that's a whole nother fucking perspective, too. So we can see maybe why he's a little fucking uh, salty. Yeah. But anyway, so this guy, Alcibiades, is young, rich, incredibly good-looking, charming, uh, a uh, champion athlete, 
who's trained in rhetoric by a guy like Socrates potentially. And yeah, this guy is super popular, right? Like (laughs) everybody fucking loves this guy. Like, well, that's weird. (laughs) Yeah. He's super fucking popular. And he actually did lead some kind of daring kind of minor, you know, expedition in the prelude to this battle of Manatea. Uh, so he had done a little bit of things, but he was slightly rising to prominence. And with the with Cleon out of the way, all of a sudden, this guy's a great kind of counterweight to Nicias. Because, you know, ob- yeah, dude, Nicias is old and boring. And, ugh. and then fucking Alcibiades is like, oh, <laughs> who's that? <laughs> like- <laughs> He's the exact opposite of Nicias. <laughs> and so, anyways, he comes up with this great idea. So, they, so the Greeks, or I'm sorry, the Athenians get word. Um, from one of their kind of distant relative colonies, this distant Ionian colony on Sicily, which is, you know, island off of Italy, part of Italy today, uh, called uh, Segesta, that this other city, Syracuse, which is Dorian, like Sparta, has been bullying them and has been trying to get them to give them money and shit. And so... Syracuse is a big city, a big, powerful city um, in that part of the Mediterranean. This is not in the Aegean. This is kind of more in the Mediterranean proper. And so Alcibiades is like, you know, look, the Spartans didn't honor their word at the Amphipolis. And, you know, now this is happening. They're probably, you know, encouraging these guys to do it. We need to go there to Syracuse on Sicily, and we need to take out we need to take Syracuse out. Okay. Now, all right. Maybe let. Do you want to talk about this now or later? This decision. Oh yeah, we're gonna have to get into this. Yeah. All right. Cool. Because I mean, this is. I feel like this is where it really fucking. This this is the turning point, right? Like this decision. I feel like. Absolutely. I mean. What? And you look at the map, and, and you're like, "What? Wait, what? What are you doing?" I know, like, like this is far away. Like, <laughs> what? What? Why? And like, and okay, so what I'm curious about is like, did Alcibiades look at a map? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I think did he like understand like what was happening, or was this like? I mean, I don't know, right? Because well, you like, got to think. You look. This at- is the way that the Athenians have been building up their power for all this time. They've been getting in their boats. They've been showing up at these cities. And then they've been saying, look, join us or. Yeah, no, for sure. That and You're right. And that is that's the fucking that's the that's the template. And it's been working really fucking good for them, man. OK, again, I want to ask the question. Do you think that Alcibiades looked at a fucking map? Because. Dude, <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's a yeah. lot fucking further away than I mean, like. I mean, I, I, I would give the Athenian assembly enough credit to know you know the geography well, of it and, i don't know well actually who knows like to what extent okay like map making i'm sure they had like somewhat accurate maps like the greeks were excellent fucking at at sailing right like that was their deal absolutely yeah so like they had they had they had good maps they had they had the info i'm just wondering to what extent did alcibiades actually absorb and synthesize that info in terms of making this particular decision i mean yeah because it seems insane to me like well, that's just one aspect when... of it the geography sorry to interrupt you go ahead 
No, no, I'm just saying like when things don't make sense, it's usually because there's information missing, right? Like, I'm not exactly sure because he has to convince people to do this, right? So, you know, he has to be speaking from some position of authority to he is playing on some passion here like the all right so like the dorian the evil dorian uh, syracuse or syracusians or whatever you call them they're bullying our little poor ionian segestians and if we don't show up to help them they'll no one will so we if we don't do it well what does that say to all of our other colonies that we're not going to help them right so that was his argument all right all right rhetorically sure that tracks a good appeal to what pathos right like yeah pathos and logos and he has a certain amount of ethos you know he's he's very charming sure. yeah you're right there there's all of all three of those things are in there yeah it's true so he's able to persuade against by the way the wishes of a guy like nikias who argued vehemently against this He's like, hey, let's not fucking. <laughs> yeah, he's like, okay. uh, no, guys. Because this is the thing: is that, like, yeah, like it sounds, it sounds really noble, and it sounds like a good idea, and it, like, yeah, oh, cool, super idealistic and awesome. But like, here's the thing: like, the logistics of the situation. <laughs> yeah, this is a long way. Favorable. <laughs> and this is this is where we see the split of like this kind of ideological thing versus like the logistics on the ground and not understanding it, I think. And I think that Alcibiades is like this perfect example of that, like yeah. where you have too much of the one thing and not enough of the other thing. I think that's a very fair assessment of our friend Alcibiades. Um... <laughs> and maybe I do feel kind of bad for saying those mean things about him, but like he did make kind of a mess of this whole thing. It was, a, it, it turned out real bad. Yeah. Looking back on this, you know, this is unnecessary. Syracuse is not a, your enemy. You're not fighting a war with them. You're already. It was an insane, irrational move that made absolutely no sense in hindsight. And, right? and not like, only that, this is going to provoke Sparta. Like we have this like really untenable peace already. If we if this doesn't go our way, they didn't even consider that this. If this doesn't go our way, we could lose the war. Like they didn't even consider yeah. that. Like they didn't even consider that this might not work. Okay, so let's talk. We've talked about this let's we haven't even talked about what actually fucking happened like take 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 us through this all right so the night before so yeah Alcibiades convinces Athens they need to send their like basically their entire fleet to rescue Segesta and punish Syracuse and the night before they set off somebody defaces or unknown parties go around the city and deface all these religious statues and idols and stuff I think they broke a bunch of the penises off. (laughs) (laughs) Unacceptable in Greek culture. (laughs) Unacceptable, dude. Unacceptable. That's what gives the gods their power. (laughs) Anyways, this was a major bad omen. Some people didn't even want to go. So the story was, or at least the rumor was, that Alcibiades and his fuckboy buddies got super drunk and went around fucking breaking off all these penises because they thought it'd be funny or some shit and probably like throwing them at each other. Oh, no. So that was the story. I don't know if that's true or not. Anyways, Alcibiades, by the time they get to Syracuse, Alcibiades has been recalled back to Athens to stand trial for sacrilege. For He is blamed for this. Now, on the way back... 
he's like, nope, I'm out of here. And he fucking nope. escapes and defects to Sparta. <laughs> so he goes See? over to the other side. Okay, so now how do we feel about what I said about him? <laughs> oh, that's why he's compared with Brutus and... I know. So this is, I, I think this is a funny story, though. But yeah. So anyway, <laughs> it doesn't. It's not funny for all the people that died in this war, though. It, that is very sad. Now guess. But yes. <laughs> guess who's sent to take command of this expedition? Hmm. Poor old Nikias. <laughs> Poor sad, tired old Nikias. He just wants to like kick it and read and drink wine and like whatever. So he's completely uh, against this operation. Yet he's the one they send to command it after Alcibiades gets down. And in some ways, like, I feel like this is, like, the perfect person that should be in charge of this. Because people that are in positions of power shouldn't want them, I feel like. I feel like that's that's the secret to good rulership, right? Like, I think there... If- if they were actually in power and they could make the decisions, that could be um, like if he had the authority to cancel That's the true. expedition. And this, you're right. In this, in this case, he doesn't really have a position of power. He's basically just he, executing commands. Yeah, he's asked to do a job that he doesn't. He's argued against. Yes, and they're like, he doesn't even think you, that we should. Yeah, he doesn't even think <laughs> that, that only, we should be going there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they're like, oh, okay, yes, th- this is different, but still, I mean... And not only that, though, Luxa, this is a daring attack. The, the Syracusians are not going to be expecting this, like... Daring is fucking generous, man. This is a fucking stupid <laughs> gambit. Yeah, it really That's is. That's not a daring yeah. attack. This is a stupid gambit. And like... so, yeah, it really is. But so anyways, Nicias is leading this fleet now, and there is another guy I haven't been mentioning, Demosthenes, who was a very fine uh, commander, but... Other than that, it's really not that important. Um, but dude, as a sidebar, like I'm sorry, dude. As as Nikias, like, what do you fucking do here? Like, you've been commanded to lead all these people into like what you're pretty sure is like a losing battle, and like most of y'all are gonna fucking die. This is an impossible situation for him. You right? don't fucking think that every anybody should be doing this in the first place? It's like, like what do you, what do you fucking do at that point like that sucks right like yeah. this is a shitty fucking situation for this dude and this, this dude's getting old right like and uh, yeah no he and he he just wanted to kick it he's like hey everybody let's chill out like we don't need to like have all this firebrand style leadership like maybe we should just fucking chill for a second yeah he tried and, to make like, peace like he really like yeah. yeah, like let's let's not fight for no fucking reason, please. Like he's an interesting nobody, guy. Like, nobody was into it. <laughs> I know, dude. This like I remember like just feeling this overwhelming sense of like just kind of like the tragedy of this person. He's probably and, like, the most like, tragic figure in the whole. Yeah, dude, tale. and just this fucking like I don't know, just this understanding, and I'm sure Thucydides did this on purpose, right? <laughs> yeah, they're in the same camp. He, yeah. he was a member yeah. of that conservative like, camp. Thucydides, yeah, Thucydides painted this picture really fucking well of like, oh, why the fuck are we even goddamn doing this at all, right? Like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> no, he really does. I mean, that is something to keep in mind with this. Is that while this is an objective look at it, he has an opinion on it that. While he's mm-hmm. offering you his opinion, he's also kind of offering you like 
the facts, I think. It's it's real fucking slick. Like he offers you the facts. He offers you, you know, like the facts objectively, but obviously you know, they're they're presented objectively, but they're selected subjectively. Yes. So Yeah, and he plays he heaps a ton of scorn upon this Alcibiades character. He's like the villain yes. of the book, basically. Yeah, oh yeah. Well he's Yes, he comes off. It's he comes. The, there's Alcibiades is given quite a bad look throughout the whole. <laughs> he the switches whole story. sides like several times. Like he joins Athens again, <laughs> and then he's like going to lead this army of Macedonians. He was going to convince them to join Athens, and then, but they wouldn't give I mean, him an yeah. army. He's like a great charlatan in the end. So okay, like maybe I know we're, it's starting to get late in the war and late into the episode, right? We like, are almost done with the war. Yeah. Do you want to just keep going here? Let's just keep going. Yeah. All right. So, oh, yeah, Nic- so sure. Nicias is now in command, and now to get to the you know to get to Sicily, you got to sail around the Peloponnese and across the Adriatic, and then around the Horn of the Horn of Italy there, and then there's Sicily. So yeah, this is a long way, and yet guess what? You yeah. sail around all of fucking Peloponnese to get there, so you can't really hide like- this, you know. Yeah, it takes them a long time. This is a whole fleet of ships. Doesn't it take like over like a year to do this? I don't think it's that long. I think it's a couple months or something. But yeah, no, this is a major force. Like they have. Yeah, uh, I thought it was like a long ass fucking time back then. They prepared. They like like, they tapped the treasury to do this. Like they had been saving all this money for this, you know, the coalition's money and quote, they just started taking it all that they had been keeping safe in Athens, but now they were just spending it on this expedition to make sure they're going to win. So, it, and they're it, like, ramp, they're like ramping up this huge fleet to go invade this fucking far away nation that doesn't really have a whole lot to do with the fucking conflict that they're already kind of half embroiled in. Right. Like, yeah, this is a neutral nation that is provoking one of your allies, basically. I mean, you and, could see, you could see the you could see the point, like. Well, yeah, no, I mean, it it wasn't like it was completely unprovoked, but like. Yeah, it's just like a risk versus reward like, kind of thing, like. And also, this this isn't going to be like a surprise attack. Is my point, like? Yeah, yeah, they you're, know you're... that you're fucking coming, right? And they're already allied with your exactly quote unquote yeah. frenemies. I so, mean. like, yeah. what are you fucking doing, right? I like, you yeah. you're not like you're, this isn't some kind of like sneak them. attack. Yeah. Like, you're you're like ramping up, like, hey, we're gonna attack you in like a year. Like, I know you're friends with our frenemies, or I mean, like, I don't know, like, what the well, fuck? the Spartans like, aren't really sure. You know, they have. They remember what happened on the uh, the Isle of Spectaria. Like that's the, that's one of their worst defeats ever. And they were gonna, you know, so they they knew the Athenians what they were doing, and they watched them go, and they just weren't sure if they were gonna attack the city or not, or just try and like, you know, persuade them. And if they weren't persuaded, then leave. But basically, they get there, and the Syracuse Syracuse is not having it, and they're not going to join Athens. Um, they basically just tell them to fuck off. And so Athens starts attacking the city. Uh, Nicias, they find like a, sh- not the, not a great harbor and unload, uh, unload their troops. And word gets back to Sparta, what the Athenians are doing. And guess who shows up with a, with a fleet <laughs> of warships. <laughs> the Spartans I mean, and their allies. Right. Yeah, like what the fuck? Seriously, like 
You're super far away from your territory, Athens. Why are you doing this? There's no way you could reinforce this fleet. You know, like exactly. Yes, there's this is an insane, like untenable fucking strategy. Like, I'm sorry, man. Like, and we don't have to get into. I'm sorry, not to interrupt you, but uh, we don't have to get into the details of this battle. But basically, the Athenian fleet is destroyed. It's fucking crushed, like like that. It's it's fucking it's abs. Yeah, not many guys got away from this one. I think some ships did get away, but yeah, the va- I mean, I think they had like two hundred ships here, and the vast majority of them were destroyed, and most of the people on them were killed. And some the people, uh, some people escaped inland. I think Nicias was one of the guys, and they were trying to like lead uh, lead people to other cities to that Segesta city to try and get to safety, but. The Syracuse sent uh, cavalry after them and killed them all. So yeah, man, this was the end of our poor friend Nicias. And so this is this is uh, <laughs> so fucking shitty. Dude. This is morphed into a catastrophe for Athens. They've lost their fleet, basically. Yeah, they all those cool ships. That was their whole deal. <laughs> all those cool ships that they had. The whole thing with fighting the fucking Persians. Their whole thing with like be you know kind of like the big dick energy that they use to wield <laughs> over all the other greek fucking city states with their cool fucking boats those are all fucking gone now right like that's all over yeah they're at the bottom yeah uh thanks I, and we can see why fucking alcibiades is the fucking villain of this story right? in some ways well, right Thucydides certainly thinks so <laughs> i mean we can see why Again, this is all based on the way that Thucydides tells the story, though. So who knows what other versions might have existed? Um, but yes. So following the destruction of the Athenian fleet, the Spartans and their athi- allies are very much encouraged by this uh, catastrophe, <laughs> and they decide to you know renew the war. And uh, that's weird. You know, so the war is basically back on all over. The Aegean again in, in Ionia and in, in modern day Turkey, you know, in Thess- uh, Thessaly, modern day Greece, there's all, you know, it's back to where it was, where it's just all out war. And the Athenians, you know, this is, this is a disaster, but yeah, the, things get real nasty now, right? Like, well, the Athenians the... aren't yet defeated. Um, okay. They are able to call on their allies, get more ships, try and keep the thing going. And, you know, they do actually win a few battles and they had some chances even, even then. But one of the big things that the Persians, I mean, I'm sorry, what the Spartans did is they got the help of the Persians. Uh, their king made like a deal with, uh, with Spartans allies and through that with Sparta. And so they were basically supporting at this point in the war they're supporting the Persian or uh, the Spartans, so it's kind of a bad look for for Sparta. You know, they were saying, "Look, we're we're protecting Greece and Greek freedom from Athens. They're they're trying to be like the Persians, and now yeah, here they are." Si- but now we're gonna protect. Yeah, now no, we're taking aid that from is very the interesting. Persians. Yeah, like we have an alliance with them, basically. Yeah. Well. Uh... I know we're going to talk about this in the discussion about the idea about uh, pragmatism versus ideal. Yes. I- ideal- <laughs> ideology when it comes to politics. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so 
the final battle in this war is a naval battle. And, you know, so the Persians are now involved and they're getting all these cities that were loyal to Athens. This is really like the heart of Athens' power. This like Ionia, they're Ionians themselves, you know, and this is the part of Greece that had been freed from Persia. And this is the core seat of their power. And so with this threatened, this is unacceptable. And they basically go all in to try and try and kick the Spartans out of there because the Spartans are up there. Their skillful general by the name of Lysander was leading a fleet and they were basically in port staring down the Athenians. They're both basically docked. And this is called the Battle of Agiospotami. Say that five times fast. <laughs> Agiospotami. 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 All right. That was pretty good. Um, <laughs> basically, the Athenian admiral was leading out his ships every day and offering battle to the Spartan fleet. And, you know, they Spartans would never fight us at sea. And then they'd go back to their ships. And we're not exactly sure what happened, but according to Thucydides, the, no, this is from Xenophon. Yeah. Um, Thucydides account ends in 411 BC. We're not sure if he died or what happened. That's, probably what happened yeah we're yeah that is not sure but anyways yeah so Thucydides account has stopped but we know about this battle from Xenophon and um this yeah this is called the battle of Agio Spotami <laughs> Lego my ego Spotami <laughs> and so the Athenians are coming out offering battle Spartans aren't taking battle Athenians are sailing back to port Somehow, we're not exactly sure. One uh, account suggests that the Athenians sent a small force of like a, like 30 ships or something to try and lure the Spartan fleet out of the harbor and fight battle. But then that fleet was defeated like immediately. And then the main fleet that was on the way to try and ambush them was also defeated. Other people say that the Athenians sailed back for the day when... The Spartans weren't going to offer battle. They got off their ships and started forging for food. And then the Spartans decided to attack them and they destroyed, they basically destroyed them without a naval battle. So this was another catastrophe for Athens. They lost basically all their entire fleet. And the Spartans executed 3,000 Athenians after this. Yeah, it was a major atrocity. Which was not great. Yeah. In retaliation for some atrocities that the Athenians had done, they had captured a couple ships and they had thrown the crews overboard. So the Spartans okay, decided yeah. to kill every, pretty much all the guys they found. Uh, yeah, we didn't really get into it, but like things got real fucking nasty. And what sucks so much is that like all of this shit was basically over nothing, right? Like it was just a fucking pissing contest, really, right? Like. I think Athens seems like this this brilliant genius, but it's just so flawed. Like it, for all its greatness, it has equal faults that undermine it, and it it just keeps coming up again and again. And like as great as it is, it holds the seeds of its own destruction. Basically, I think that's like a really interesting um, metaphor that we could probably apply to like a lot of stuff, right? Like everything 
no matter how cool and great it is, it has like an equal and opposite, maybe shadow aspect, right? Like that should be watched out for and accounted for. That's definitely a good point, dude. Yeah. I don't know. Well, and you can see that with Athens, yeah. Yeah, I mean, everything has its upside and its downside. I mean, there's no such thing as a free lunch, as Robert A. Heinlein said. <laughs> so. <laughs> and so this battle, this is in 405 BC. This is the last major battle. Athens goes on to surrender in 404 BC, and they are cut off from their grain supplies at this point. They have no navy. They are starving. This is 27, 27 years of war uh, at this point, and the Athenians eventually are broken, and Sparta has decisively crushed Athens in this war. Athens is utterly defeated. All right. Hell yeah. Okay, cool. Aftermath and discussion, right? All right, like... so Athens has lost after 27 <laughs> years of hard war where many ethical lines have been crossed. Uh... <laughs> yeah, like... For, again, for fucking, uh, like, arguably, like, no reason other than just kind of like a weird power struggle between these uh, city-states that used to be allies, right? Like, Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people would say that Athens was just out of control. It, like, Yeah. The leadership contributed, I think, a lot to this, right? Now, at the same time, if they win the war, which they easily could have at several points, and again, if Pericles might have went, let, lived, then that original strategy might have actually worked. And it, it kind of did work. I mean, it wasn't because of that that they lost their fleet in Sicily, you know. It, uh, it wasn't Pericles that sent them, you know. So they had their chances. Sure, sure. They definitely had their chances, and they lost. Um, had they made better decisions, you know? Sure. Well, I'm not saying that it's all Pericles' fault. Like, I think that with Alcibiades, they wanted to find a new Pericles, right? Like, yeah, absolutely. So, so I mean, it, it wasn't. I, I'm not saying it was. It was a Pericles problem. It was just a stylistic problem. You you can definitely see a lot of the shortcomings of that of that model of government with this with this war. Cult of personality isn't always the greatest government style, right? <laughs> it's just like any system of power, you know, there are certain rules and people that understand those rules are able to exploit them extraordinarily well. Maybe not, you know, maybe they don't actually have that much substance to them, but that doesn't really matter if you can convince people that you do, right? <laughs> when a hundred men stand together, they all lose their minds and get a new one. I don't know, dude. <laughs> I, yeah. So anyways, one of the horrible ironies of this is that, uh, or hilarious ironies, is that the Spartans make them tear down their walls. <laughs> so the, the long ah. walls are cast down. Yes, indeed. And... As the pig, the pigs stand up and begin to wear pants. <laughs> <laughs> and they make this uh, oligarchy. They officially get rid of democracy and make this like oligar uh, oligarchy. It's called the 30, 30 Tyrants. But uh, that regime only lasted a couple of years before it democracy was restored. And so basically the results of this war is that Athens as a military power has been reduced to still something that could probably defend themselves if they're attacked, but they no longer have an empire. They can, that's completely gone. They're still, well, all their cool boats are gone. All their cool boats <laughs> right? are gone. 
they are still the cultural center of Greece, without a question. Mm -hmm. And this is the time mm -hmm. when people like Aristotle are alive and Plato. And, you know, this is a flourishing golden age of culture in Greece that's kind of taking place at the same time, this disastrous war, which is a really interesting and weird dichotomy. But I think that we see this in history a lot of times, though. There's something about this weird, like, pressure that, like, I don't know. This would be an interesting topic to explore in another episode. Yeah, it really could be. But so Athens isn't, like, raised and destroyed. They just no longer have an empire. They're still a great city. But guess who uh, decides to inherit that little empire that they had? Well, if you guess Sparta, then you're right. <laughs> <laughs> and... You know, they had. How does that go? How does that go for everybody? Oh, how do you think? It went great, dude. You know, they had fought. Sparta had fought and sacrificed a lot, but a lot of their allies had had fought harder and, and sacrificed more. And we can talk about some of that in just a sec. But um, guess who didn't get any return in any of the spoils? <laughs> Once you guess their allies, mm. then you were right. Sparta took everything mm. for themselves and they basically started behaving like Athens so weird how that always seems to happen. <laughs> it did not work out well for them um I've... like it like because that's weird because it didn't seem like it worked out super good for athens know, right just... before like like right fucking before it's very interesting how these things seem to kind of repeat and or people make the same mistakes or Maybe it's just that there are certain aspects of human nature that are at play here. And that's, I think, what Thucydides was kind of pointing at. Yes, exactly. Thucydides has, there's some really interesting underpinnings there. Some people have said that Thucydides is the father of game theory, which is really fascinating. Um, and I can kind of see why people would say that. He kind of comes to this conclusion, like, we're asking, why did this war happen? And he blames Athens, basically. And not that Athens was evil or bad. It's just that... Well, okay, so uh, we asked this question, I think it might have been in the last episode where it was like, okay, we're Athens now, and like we've got all these cool ships and shit. Like, oh man, what are we going to do with like this giant military force and all this cool shit that we have? Yeah, and like, yeah. we sacrificed this like giant silver, like, you know, load that we found yep. to build all these cool ships to fight the Persians. And then we did that. Now everybody thinks like we're super cool and we have all these ships, and everybody's like kind of kissing our asses a little bit. So. Let's just keep that fucking energy going. And then the fucking people are like, yeah, totally. So they're like, you know, kind of getting leaders in there that are, is kind of like this feedback cycle where they're like electing people that are telling them what they want to hear. And it's like, yeah. And like, like, they're not really like elected. I mean, I guess they are as generals. They are like appointed as generals, but these like policy decisions are being debated in the, in the assembly. So Okay. And that's where this stuff is being decided. So you have to convince people this is the right way to Maybe do it. Maybe elected is the elected is the wrong word. I mean sele selected. Like cuz they're they're selected by the assembly, not elected by the public. Yeah, right? yeah. Like they're, the the this kind of mindset is what is leading to the people that are in charge being in charge is it's kind of a feedback loop, right? Like 
Oh, I think I think you see a lot of that. And um, unfortunately, that doesn't work very well. Hmm. Alexis de Tocqueville, French travel writer, author of Democracy in America, he, he noted about America how the democracy here was great, but it would cease working once the people could vote themselves a paycheck. I'm paraphrasing there, but I think you kind of see that in Athens too. Like all of a sudden the city is becoming massively wealthy and that wealth is trickling down, you know, and I could see how that could undermine things like the promise of more wealth or, you know, more power that, you know, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, definitely. So, uh, yeah, I think that, you know, it might be, yeah, one of the, one of the failings of this, of the system and, this is not like what we have. This is much more direct, right? Oh yeah, this is. And uh, by the way, like what we have is not a democracy. That that's a fucking misconception of our political system here in America. We have a, like a representative republic. It's not a fucking democracy. I don't know why people seem to think that it is. I don't. Anyway, we could talk about that another time. But it's a democratic republic, right? Like, yeah, semantic. Yeah, yeah. Democratic. Semantics, but important distinctions just saying yeah this is like because people seem to have a misunderstanding about it that's all like yeah yeah this is like real radical if me and you were deciding military policy basically like or financial policy that's such a fucking that's a, such a fucking scary prospect isn't it dude <laughs> like, yeah and so how would that work like how does that bubble up and it's not like exactly like that because you have to be a citizen you have to be able to vote but you know but I mean, like, it could be anybody. Like, yeah. a couple of assholes like you and I are automatic, all of a sudden, in charge of this like fleet of warships or whatever. And it's like, okay, well, what should we do with all of these warships and soldiers and shit? Right. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> like, and so yeah, yeah, it's dude, like, what, what I, are the like? How are how are the masses supposed to? Like, how are me and you supposed to, yeah, decide this? Like, we don't know. Like, then you get a guy like Alcibiades coming in or Cleon. He's saying, you know, making convincing arguments in one way or another. <laughs> no, I mean, philosophically, though, like, how does anybody fucking know? Like, this is, I, again, we can get into the, like, deep questions of, like, power and rulership and so, whatever in another episode. But, like, when it really comes down to it, how does anybody really fucking know? Like, who is really more qualified than anybody else to fucking lead? Like, interesting questions, right? Like, well, yeah. I mean, I think like with military stuff, it's pretty. I mean, it's pretty well established that a guy like Alcibiades would be not ideal to be making your military policy. Like, yeah, man. Versus a guy like Nicias, who they probably should have listened to. Um, <laughs> he just like okay. So, and this is the other thing, like. Nikias didn't understand branding, right? Like, yeah. If Nick, if could have like had an advisor or well, something, I mean, he that's had a brand, like, hey, like he he had like a traditional like hearty brand, <laughs> okay. like Quaker oatmeal or something like that, you know, like sure, but like people weren't buying his brand, and he, it wasn't he had sexy. a brand advisor that it wasn't sexy. Nobody wanted it, and like it wasn't telling them what they wanted to hear either. Yeah, <laughs> so. I have a fun little uh, quote from Thucydides here about just kind of what people want to hear. And I have two different translations because that's kind of fun to do with a lot of these quotes because they are a little bit different. Hell yeah. All right. So Definitely. translation number one, most people, in fact, will not take the trouble in finding out the truth, but are much more inclined to accept the first story they hear. <laughs> All right. Translation number two. All right. Yeah. Yeah. The search for truth strains the patience of most people. 
who would rather believe the first thing that comes to hand. Hmm. I think I think the um, it's a fascinating topic. There's certainly something to be said about reading the same thing with different translations. God, it, it's hard to find the these famous Thucydides quotes the same way, and they're always a little bit different. And it's kind of one of the things I like about it is ancient Greek seems to be almost impossible to translate into English. You kind of have to like I don't know improvise like. Seems like it's more of a language that was meant to be spoken, and that's how you could convey a lot of the meaning with it. Well, I mean, I don't know. It's it's really hard to say. Like, language is such a complex topic, but like, I mean, our concepts of these, you know, constructs that words represent have evolved so much in the time in between, too. No doubt, yeah. That no doubt. like, there's there's a gulf of of time. So so let's talk a little bit more about Thucydides and why this is important. Writing this after he gets fired <laughs> and blamed. So right, right so right away, that's not the most reliable narrator, right? Like, there's a lot of there's a lot of problems with that, right? Like, as far as bias could go, and even subconscious bias, just trying to defend yourself or trying to make yourself look better by presenting things in other ways. So. I think that is something to that, that is important to remember or, or to appreciate when you're studying Thucydides is that, yeah, we have modern standards now and we like to think of Thucydides as the founder of those standards, but he was not held to the same standards. Like it's kind of very much like Herodotus where you're kind of making something as you go and not necessarily going to span the ages entirely. I mean, parts of it are going to be problematic. And so, so that exists in Thucydides as well. Like there, there is bias. Like there's no, it, it's unquestionable. Like he, I don't think that, I don't think that there ever is not bias. Like I've, I've had a lot of arguments with people about this in terms of like journalism and shit like that. But like, I'm sorry, like to me, like if you have a human, which is how all reporting history, history, journalism, anything takes place. Like there's always a perspective. Like everybody has their own perspective every single point of view is going to carry some degree of bias and that's just how shit works i, I agree yeah and it's not like it's not like poorly intentioned or like, this is not like me throwing shade at anybody like this i feel like this is just like a a natural thing that comes along with any story that you hear is the perspective of the storyteller sure i mean it's it's impossible to you know distance yourself from your your nature versus nurture right you're, there's always going to be that nurture right? sure like, Sure, sure, sure. Like you're you're a fish in the tank. You can't you can't necessarily you know. Exactly. You 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 can't divorce yourself from your own biases because you might not even be aware of them. So yes, that's something that is oftentimes brought up with with Thucydides by his critics, and there are a lot of his there are a lot of critics um, that you know this is this is a biased account, and it, <laughs> you know it is, but he's at least trying. He's not he's not bullshitting. I mean, okay, so when you say bullshitting, what do you mean, though? Like, he's obviously saying what he really thinks, but is he actually being objective? Well, he's relaying, he's trying to relay what happened, right? Like, that's what he's trying to do with this war, is relay what happened. That's what he says he's trying to do. Yeah, yeah. but yet he's also kind of heaping his own personal opinion, I guess. Yeah, which he has every, he has every fucking right to do, right? Sure. Like yeah his life was fucking ruined by like some weird 
Well, and this isn't some miscommunication or something like. Well, why we right? Know. He was I mean, exiled from his homeland for twenty years for like not showing up to. I mean, like, <laughs> yeah, it does suck. What right? like, yeah, like his life, his life was literally fucking completely sort of ruined by this weird shit. And he, I feel like, I feel like the histories of the Peloponnesian War is his trying to fucking come to grips with what the fuck happened and why and like, I don't know, man, <laughs> like. Well, yeah, no, I think that's uh, definitely part of it. Also, there's just so many aspects of it. Like, there were these chances, right, for, like, we could de-escalate. We could yeah. just fucking call it here. Yeah. But, no, we have to fucking continue on this dumb, whatever, like, pissing contest or whatever you want to yeah, call it. Yeah, and once like, the Spartans this... kind of got went all in, they started behaving like the Athenians, too. They, they went back on the peace treaties and they were, you know, they were being underhanded. You know, when you fight monsters, as Nietzsche said, man. Yeah. And we talked about kind of this pessimistic perspective that Thucydides has. And maybe that's because he is biased and he thinks that he, maybe he thought that if he was still around and in command, they could have, maybe they could have won or they would have made better decisions or whatever. Like, well, he, I mean, I'm sorry, like... You're Thucydides, and you're looking at fucking Alcibiades. You've been exiled from your homeland. You're, like, you've dedicated your life to, like, trying to understand this war. And you see this motherfucker making these decisions. You have no say in what's going on. All you're doing is, like, going around writing shit down, dude. This is a fucking, like... It's brutal. (laughs) This is, like... But it's also sort of in some ways a little bit romantic too in terms of like the like uh archetype of the chronicler or the historian just like this tragic figure that's like that sees all but has no agency in the battle or whatever yeah. you know <laughs> like... and is only remembered after death you know <laughs> exactly. has, has no you know knows no satisfaction <laughs> in life but <laughs> So, yeah, one of the kind of depressing aspects of this war is that it degenerates into something that the Romans would kind of understand. And that's just kind of this political realism, I guess. Thucydides is often credited with founding the school of political realism, not intentionally. Also, the school of pessimism is another word you could call it. And Thucydides kind of comes to the realization, or at least maybe his disciples have come to this realization that the driving interest in all human affairs is fear and self-interest. And if you look at this war through those lens, then you can explain all these things if, by just one of those two things. Like it, he kind of sums okay. it down into that. Yeah, no. And I think that, that like, that was my understanding of that too. But like, I would even push it further to say that like fear is just a version of self-interest. Like it's just the, aversion to having one's self harmed yeah it's kind so of it's, opposite, it, yeah. it really just all comes down it all comes down to self-interest i feel like yeah. and, I, and I, I don't actually don't think that that's super surprising to me because i have a degree in biology and like that seems kind of on par with the way that things work like yeah for for us it, it makes sense it's materialistic in, in a lot of ways right like yeah i mean and and we do sort of like to have these like constructs and ideas about like cool ideals and like things that people can think about to give them purpose in their lives and like you can look at it that way or you could look at it 
in the way of like pure biology and say that it's about survival like it really all depends on how you choose to contextualize these things so yes yeah i mean i think that's a huge you talk about like propaganda or communication or whatever like how you wrap your package that i mean that's one of the aspects of roman rhetoric you know is the presentation it's uh <laughs> I like the way that you phrased that because it was also very Roman. <laughs> <laughs> Nihil nobi subsolar. Indeed, nothing is ever new. Um, so, anyways, like Thucydides kind of sums up this. You know, I don't think he liked this worldview. It's just something that he kind of came to, right? Like that's kind of what's different about this work is that it's yeah, it's pessimistic is... <laughs> because he's witnessing all this stuff happen. Like how, like you could be optimistic in the face of it, but it just seems to, like and especially because he took part in it and fought in it and he caught the plague of Athens, but he survived and yeah. And so this isn't this is like in some ways Thucydides, he's not like romantically recording these things in the way that Herodotus did which Absolutely I did not. I do think you know like Herodotus it is I would say objective like he's like okay just tell me what happened I'll write it down okay that's 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 like the uh, definition of objective right like I'm not making any judgments about this I'm just reporting it right like even though it's super weird and wacky I mean yeah it speaks to one of the methods that we haven't quite talked about with Thucydides and that is he does not mention the gods once in this work. The gods have no, no place in this work. Yeah. Here, that's a great fucking point too. Cause like here humans have all the agency. Thucydides understands the war from the inside. Yeah. He knows the fucking people personally. He has been there. Like he gets it. He knows both he's sides. Not, yeah. He, he's commanded one. So and how- he's, so how is he considered objective? Well, I think it's, be- well, I mean, he's, he's nearly not, but it's just that his method was trying to be yeah. objective, right? No, for sure. Like, and that's what I think is so fascinating about it. And so like, because like, oh, sorry, go ahead. it's clearly not objective, but at the same time, like we feel like it fucking is right. Like, yeah, it's like, he's, well, it's kind of like he's inventing something as he goes. Like, Sure. It's like this new method that I'm talking about, but I'm going to use the old method to promote it, kind of. But yeah, it's kind of like one foot in both because he he is trying to be objective. It's just well, maybe we just don't have the right word for it in our language or something because it's not quite objective. It's not subjective. I mean, it's subjective, but it's also not just subjective. Like it's it's kind of like you're like you're right. It's a it's a this really interesting bridge that I don't think that we have a word for. Maybe I just don't know it. So like that's very possible. But yeah. Yeah. Like is speaking of this bridge of between these two cultures. Like when we're trying to understand the Greeks. Like you know people have made you know there's several speeches in Thucydides and as mentioned that he was not there at these speeches. You know, this is a paraphrasing that he he interviewed people and heard what they said, and then he kind of tried to write it how he thought they would say it. And like for us, that's it's like something you would never do, like in history. Like you would never quote like fucking, you know, like Caesar said this and this and this to this person because you weren't, you know. So I thought, yeah, I mean, 
that's basically what he did. He would paraphrase these speeches. And I guess this was something that ancient Greek culture, we, you know, was an oral culture. And having these speeches was something that was expected to anybody who's going to be reading this, is that that was part of the way of communicating, especially the politics of this stuff, was with speeches. Because you needed that personal rhetoric to kind of get the point across of what the, you know, what their point was, you know? So it's not necessarily his point. It's what he thought they were trying to say, or he thought it was their point, but it is kind of his yeah. point because he's writing it. Right. So it is, it's a, it's a very problematic by mob, <laughs> modern standards, but these are yes. also two of the best passages of the entire book. And I read part of the uh, funeral, funeral oration of Pericles earlier where he makes that, he makes an amazing speech. But the other one is the Siege of Melos, or the Melian Dialogue. And this one's really depressing. And this is a little island, like, in the middle of the Aegean that was a Spartan colony. And they had tried to remain neutral during this war. And in 416 BC, you know, kind of when everything is unraveling for Athens, right before this disastrous expedition, they go out to Melos and basically try and bully them into submission and they show up with their fleet this is a tiny little city that can't possibly defeat athens in battle so they show up with their fleet they unload they make camp and then they send uh, these emissaries to talk to the leaders of the city and try and get them to basically surrender and join athens and so thucydides reconstructs this conversation between the emissaries and the rulers of the city. So obviously he's not there. He's not. And I don't think people like at the time, people at the time understood this, right? Like this wasn't, it's, it's just that us, we take things so literally. We're like, oh, you know, but so anyways, he, he reconstructs this conversation. And this is like kind of one of the meat, one of the meat of the whole book is that the Athenians show up and they say, look, we don't have any kind of great justification for this. We are doing this because you have what we need and we can do it. And you have two choices. You can join us, tear down your walls. I mean, they didn't actually say that, but metaphorically. And pay us money, join our little Delian League. Or you can resist us and we can destroy you. Those are your two choices. And the Melians are like, well, wait a minute. You don't have any right to come here and tell us to do that. We're neutral. We, we don't want any part of this war. So... Just go back to where you were and leave us alone. And the Athenians are basically like, no, like you're weak, we're strong. And sadly, that's the way things are. And ultimately, the Melians refuse to surrender and Athenians siege the city and they kill every man and take every woman and child into slavery. Okay, so that's cool of the Athenians. You know, it's not pretty. It's not nice. And if you want to talk about justification for war and all these things, but when you get to how the sausage is actually made, this is it. Like, this is the truth that, yeah, we get, we're going to show up and we're going to do what we can. And look, we gave you a chance. Hey, you had a choice, you know, that's just the, you know, like it's, a, it's very uncomfortable kind of. Um... Yeah. Oh yeah. No, for sure. I mean, like this is the thing that is uncomfortable about looking at history uh, because in some ways it holds up a mirror to the present 
yeah and possibly the future <laughs> who knows and, and, and here you have this is athens that's doing this this is the center of culture for the whole yeah fucking this is world. these like, are the what we okay so what we consider in our culture to be like oh these are the super cool enlightened people like uh, maybe a little bit of a misconception in some ways yeah. because of things like this right like yeah i mean sure they had incredibly smart people living in athens but the actual society was not that enlightened because yeah they're doing stuff like this right but it, exactly. it wasn't like they wanted to do this this was just the reality like this is well okay so and then the reality of the ancient world and i guess you could probably fucking make the argument in the modern world or in maybe any world i don't really fucking know interesting as a question but uh the fucking strong do as they will and the weak suffer as they must right like yeah that's, that's where that comes from yeah the, that's the fucking thinking right like isn't this this yeah like you said this is where this originates yeah. right they're like oh yeah sorry like fuck you we're just like we know this is like a dick move but like and it's ultimately we're do it. this so yeah it's this real politique these selfish uh you know self-serving motivations that are the real you know cause of these events now we dress it up in, in all kinds of you know clothes like religion or ideology mm -hmm. or ethnic stuff but when you get down to the meat of it this is why these things are happening it's it's just about resources and basic animal shit right like i, th I think that would be something that you could say yeah that this is very much about resources and very very animalistic in in that way and that you can kind of take these archetypal kind of uh, theories on power and motivation and you can take them anywhere and apply them to other societies, right? Like, cause they can translate to basically any society because they're, they seem to be fun, like archetypal in that sense. And yeah, they do seem to hold up pretty well. Like I, I think that's one of the reasons Thucydides is so popular is that you can read this mm -hmm. book and gosh, it sure does sound familiar yeah, man. Or like reading Sun Tzu or like, yeah, like there's just some like things that it's like, yes, this is just a fucking, I guess, co like common knowledge, not common knowledge. That's that's the wrong term. But like this, this just tracks, right? Like, it's, yes, it's a logical progression, right? Like, it's not just like, hey, take my word for it. It's like, you know, you're trying to give some evidence, and, you know. And not only is it true on like a, you know, intellectual or philosophical level, it's also true on a sort of instinctive level where you're like, yes, this does seem to be the way that all animal societies behave across scales and times. Like, unfortunately, I don't know. Interesting questions, uncomfortable questions, but yes. Yeah. And I, I don't think there's any, you know, obviously there's no right answer to, the, to this conversation. No. Like, oh no, no, obviously this only, all of this is only meant to like spark further discussion. Yeah. But I think at least, Thucydides might agree with you that there's some kind of underlying instinct, maybe that and and maybe and and maybe this instinct can be overcome and changed. We don't know, but I think recognizing it might be the first uh, step in exploring that, right? Yeah, well, that's basically some of the translations of his opening paragraph where he says, you know, this is a work for all time. He says, yeah. I'm, I'm writing this because. I think it'll be important to you for understanding like yourself or, or the times that you live in. Like he's kind of trying to make that point. Like, 
and in other ways like it's like this terrible thing happened to me like because of this weird misunderstanding and i'm gonna try to figure it out and like let everybody else know so that it's not gonna happen to anybody else again like i've suffered this like horrible thing but i'm gonna fucking turn it into a gift that i'll give the future to like make it so it won't happen again right like i honestly don't think that his motivation was preventing further catastrophe i think it was just for understanding it because i don't think he i kind of think that he thought (laughs) that is terrible english i believe that he (laughs) thought that this is something that will be repeating because it is as long as our societies are arranged in the same way these things are going to keep creeping up because you saw it with the Persians, then you saw it with the Athenians and then you saw it with the Spartans. Like, it's just like, it's like you're just passing the torch and people are making the same mistakes over and over and over again. And it's the same motivations. It's the same shortcomings. And it seems to be something that this is my opinion on Thucydides that I think he was a pessimist that he would probably believe in original sin or that like humanity is flawed or that, um, and I think his experience could make you probably understand that pessimism when you're witnessing mm-hmm. basically the disintegration sure. of your civilization in front of you. And you have a firsthand seat at the witnessing this catastrophe happening. And, fuck- and you had a fucking chance to like yeah. be in that fight, but then you got kicked you out. Got kicked out. And now there's nothing you can do. And you just have to watch nothing it. You, can, you can't even fucking go back home. Can you go like, home that sucks. Dude. Like defend yourself. Like, <laughs> Yeah. So it, no, it is for sure. like, it makes sense why he have such a pessimistic view. And I guess I don't think he's wrong is the thing about it. Like the book is startlingly relevant today. And when you read something like the Bible or even parts of Caesar, like it's clearly fantastical. Like I didn't, we, we didn't get into those parts of Caesar, but there's one part where he goes to like this forest where these magical animals live or something. It's, it's very much like Herodotus, but, but there's <laughs> none of that in, uh, in Thucydides. Like, no, there is, there's like no, Thucydides is not a feel-good romp no, for the it is cold. <laughs> it's cold. It's, it's cynical. A, yeah. It's a fucking like it's like reading Ernest Hemingway, actually, right? Like it's, in a lot of ways. It's I very feel like, cynical in that way. Yes. Yeah, I feel like Ernest Hemingway is like really embodying the Thucydian archetype. Yeah, I can anyway. see that. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so like these speeches, like while um just go to back on the speeches briefly. While they're problematic, shit, man, if, if we didn't have them, we'd be missing out on some of the best parts of the book. Like, so, so like, get all, like, uh, about the speeches. Is just, you're just missing the point. Like, anyways, so I mentioned earlier kind of, like, the Greeks losing their will to go on. Like, mm-hmm. and that, that does sound like hyperbole, and it is. But to a large extent, I think that this war really was that devastating, and... When, yeah, I mean, like, when you see what happens afterwards, like, that's that rings really true, man. Yeah, and it's it's reminds me a lot of the French Revolution, where after mm. 27 years of war, I mean, you know, after yeah. the Napoleonic Wars and shit, people were just exhausted. And, you know, they're ready to do whatever, basically, after that. They just don't want to keep fighting for that long, especially when the victory, I mean, when the defeats start piling up and that, you know. Anyways, like, one of the tragic things about this war is that and one of the lessons that could be drawn is that, you know, this 
Spartan hegemony, uh, hegemony did not last very long. It lasted like 30 years before Sparta lost a humiliating battle with the city Thebes. And all of a sudden, Greece was up in arms again, and it seemed like the, the, it was going to repeat itself. There's going to be another massive war. But at this time, well, guess who decides to come down and protect the Greeks from themselves? And that's the Macedonians and King Philip. And, you know, when, uh, when Xerxes came back for the Second Persian War, all of Greece was united to defeat the invaders. But when King Philip came, only two cities showed up to fight him just like the, the only two mm-hmm. cities showed up for the first first persian war and that was athens and this time it was thebes and they were soundly defeated by macedonia and all the cities in northern greece and a bunch of the other major cities had made a peace a separate peace with king philip where they'd basically just surrender their sovereignty and he could come in as long as he didn't you know attack them so they basically gave up their freedom and let these macedonians come in and occupy the whole country yeah i at that point they were ready to just say fuck it right like they they were like you said tired it does seem that way right yeah and they never or i shouldn't say never but they only regained their freedom and became like truly independent again uh in the 19th century so they were a captive race for thousands of years after that is it fair to even say that they're like a race? Like, yeah, I think I think I think it's fair, yeah, because they're kind of their own thing. Yeah, the Greek. Okay, yeah, no, I'm not sure. Like, I mean, in terms of like the geography, because we talked about like there's like, like different ethnicities within it and everything, and like. Uh no, I, I think that's fair. Yeah, and I, it's okay. That, that's really not the point. It's just that they lost their independence for you know thousands of years. Yeah. Okay. And that has it's so tragic, right? Like in a lot of ways. Yeah. And it's so interesting that this is the story that happened, yet we hold it up as such an example of success when it didn't turn out to be that successful. Oh, you mean the Greeks? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, and that's an uncomfortable truth, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, the guys that conquered them, you know, the Macedonians... They very much, like the Romans did later, assimilated to their culture because mm-hmm. their culture was ex- had a extreme magnetism, you know, magnetic pull all around. You know, they, it really was amazing, like the Greek arts and stuff. Like, Greek, oh no, fuck yeah, man. yeah. Greek artwork is so many amazing beautiful. things, like, definitely. And like, so little of the painting has survived, but from accounts of it. You know, there was supposedly this painter in Athens that could get people to walk into walls because they thought it was like, you know, an arch. And uh, no, they weren't walking into walls. He had painted some some grapes on a wall and people would try and pick the grapes all the time because they they thought they were real. (laughs) That's so cool. Yeah. (laughs) And like just another example is when they built after the Persians were defeated the second time and they left. Pericles convinced them to rebuild the Acropolis, you know, because it was destroyed. And so that's when they built the, uh, the Parthenon. And that thing is freaking sweet. Like, they knew to use perspective to actually change the proportions of pillars themselves. Because if they were actually straight, perfectly straight, the eye makes an optical illusion that makes it bow inwards. And you can do this by just 
drawing two lines and uh, horizontally and then drawing a few lines vertically between them. And it seems to, they seem to bow. So the Greeks understood this. And so they, the proportions on the pillars are actually not perfect. They're designed to make it look perfect because the i know yeah yeah like it's... dude P- plato fucking decries this sh- shit like it's so funny yeah 100 it's just so cool that, anyway <laughs> like like you're talking like we're talking about the bible and some of these other ancient histories and the gods are there in there it just seems like so far away and such a silly past but then when you read some of this stuff it just seems so sure familiar and no for sure like no dude thucydides is i really do feel like at least in terms of like western civ and shit this is when we really fucking come down to earth right i think that i i think that is all that i have to say about thucydides this time (laughs) (laughs) i see that we've been talking about this very interesting person that's been dead for quite a long time for almost three hours so that's very fun Thank you so much for listening to the Ad Hoc History Podcast. If you have any problems with anything that we fucking said, or you have any thoughts or questions or ideas or anything, you can email us at adhochistorypod at gmail.com. Well, yeah, thanks for listening, everybody. I'm sure I left out a bunch of important stuff and probably fucked up a bunch of stuff in this one, too. But um, if you're you go- welcome. Yeah, you're welcome. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, I'd love to hear what you guys think about these cities. Uh, it's you know somewhat controversial guy still today, and uh, I hope that this episode made sense. As your body grows big, your mind must flower. It's great to learn, cause knowledge is power. Now we know. And knowing is half the battle. G-I-O.